This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Happy Monday. It's the start of a brand new week. Hopefully you had a fun weekend filled with uh, football and frivolity. Uh, Well, that frivolity comes to an end because we have three very serious individuals in studio with me at the moment. I've been enjoying these uh, midnight panels. If If you're new to the program or haven't heard the eclectic mix of individuals we've been we've been gathering together for these midnight panels picture the mclaughlin group only a little less stiff and uh that is certainly the case with our panelists for today uh the gentleman that you have heard for the last 70 hours on the radio here on wabc is no stranger to this audience he also happens to be the uh, former republican nominee for mayor of new york city uh, an early pioneer in terms of the uh, the Husband versus wife style of radio, and then left versus right. Now he does what he calls stream of consciousness radio, which has morphed into uh, basically ten hours of criticism of this program on the weekend. The one and only Curtis Lee. Well, Curtis, and thank you let's for sticking not around. Leave out trivia, constant trivia that leads into more conversation. Right, as I've explained, your idea of trivia is not remembering something, and then asking the listeners to what it is that you don't remember, and then masquerading that. The only thing more dangerous than when you when you try to when you know you don't remember something is when you think you do remember something. Just last hour, I heard you say that uh, an Netflix special was on HBO. I've heard you all weekend long refer to the lieutenant governor as Richardson, even though his name is Benjamin, and uh, <laughs> the, 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 a myriad of other examples like that. But welcome, uh, and we are we are joined by two other people who are no stranger to this audience. They love working. Working out, but they absolutely cannot stand vaccination mandates. Uh, satirist, social critic, and mom, Marlena Shivo. Hello, Marlena. Hello, Frank. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Curtis loves when you say, How are you? Oh, so I know. Sure I heard that, that earlier. He I does say that not to him like a little bit later. People ask how he's doing. He'll tell you. <laughs> that, better day. That, that is the other thing with that. You know, you waste so much time responding to people saying, How are you? But I have so much time. 22 hours <laughs> on the weekend. It's ABC always broadcasting Curtis. This is true. Also joining us in studio is a a gentleman who started coming on this show as a result of nepotism, but he was able to retain his spot based on his own merit. Uh, Personal trainer extraordinaire, podcaster, astrologer, and my brother-in-law, Josh O'Brien. Hello, Josh. Thank you for having me, Mr. Morano. Well, it's great <laughs> to see you both. Now, wow, what a deep voice. Yeah, he's, you know, not wow. going to mess with this guy. You get out of line. Yeah, I'm right. You. Uh, you know, Molly told me before the show, Curtis said he's going to go easy on your guests on the panel. I said, Curtis is not the one I'm worried about <laughs> with, with, with these three. Uh, 
but um, let me begin with you, Marlena and Josh, since uh, since Curtis is here. He obviously recently ran for mayor of New York City. It was a close race. It was about 70 to 30 um, percentage of the vote not going his way. And uh, why do you think Curtis didn't get elected mayor of New York City? Well, I don't know. I mean, Curtis, you know, you have like four wives and like 13 cats. I think maybe if you spent more time like on your campaign and not chasing tail, maybe you would have won. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> you mean chasing trim? <laughs> well, I don't know what that means. Ah, uh, well, that that predates you. You weren't even birthed yet. <laughs> well, when it's, that term came it's up. tail for a cat thing too. You know, it's, it's, yeah, a, that's it's very good, very good that you got that. It's but no, I, I look, seven to one ratio. That means Democrats registered versus Republicans. And we knew when 300,000 fled the summer of 2020, they were mostly Republicans down in Florida. So uh, <laughs> the overall the point spread was not very good. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, any other uh, any other reasons why you think Curtis maybe didn't didn't come out on top? Um, I think he probably should have. I actually said to you he should have campaigned with pronouns, but he did not you take my advice. Yeah, you missed true. the pronouns. And I do think that he should have put solar panels on his beret to show that he is a, uh, you know, a big fan but, of But the can you explain the pronouns thing? It's a little beyond me. Well, you know, you know, Kamala Harris um, on her Twitter page has uh, hit she, her. Oh. Right, you would have had to on Twitter identify as he, him, if that's what you wanted to if do. If that's what you identify but as. But you'd be, you'd that's be better you're not off a going with the Well, that's a bit complicated for me. You know, it's hard enough to But just... I was trying to get you to appeal to the woke demographic. Woke? Yeah, that's but I never sleep. city. I'm always awake. Well, all these woke people are totally asleep because they don't understand what the hell's going none, on. None, but... of them, none of them voted for me. We <laughs> but... looked at the bad. My the average age of a voter for me was what seventy eight. Uh, about that. Yeah. I'm just trying to get you to Slightly speak their language than a little bit. <laughs> See, like like I am right now. Like I wore hat gear tonight to make you, to feel to make you feel included. In, in, in a, to promote inclusivity that's, see, that's to, nice. to hat wear a hat. That's very nice. There you go. Uh, Josh and I almost wore yarmulkes just to fit in. Ism. Uh, Josh, any thoughts about why Curtis here didn't get elected uh, mayor of New York City? You can answer honestly. It sounds to me like he nailed it. I mean, when you look at the ratios of the registered voters, uh, Democrat, Republican, uh, it's an uphill battle. And although he uh, tried his best, uh, I guess uh, he did the best he could this time. Well, you know what? Uh, the experts, the wonks, told me that my position against the mandates, against mandatory vaccines, against mandatory mask uh, wearing, cost me about 6% of the vote. So I might have been up there at about 35% of the vote, but I said I didn't care, man. I mean, look, I was just not pro-mandate, pro-vaccine. Uh, this is the wrong group to uh, mention uh, vaccine mandates with. We're gonna. Get, you better duck when uh, we discuss vaccine. Were they mandates in Washington D.C. Well. today with RFK? They would have been had oh, they okay. not been right. here. Mm -hmm. Trust me, believe me. All right. Um, let me ask your opinion, uh, Curtis. I know you covered this on one of your nine programs yesterday on this M&M controversy. I'm not sure I completely uh, understand it, but the M&Ms evidently are. Um, shifting their focus somewhat. There's a lot of controversy over the M&M uh, as they're depicted in the commercial, particularly the green M&M. Here was Tucker Carlson commenting on the green M&M uh, just a couple of days ago. Bet you didn't think M&Ms were pushing intolerance, but they were. They've been changed. The green M&M, you will notice, is no longer wearing sexy boots. Now she's wearing sensible sneakers. Why the change? 
Well, according to M&Ms, quote, we all win when we see more women in leading roles. Curtis, your reaction to the changes of, of, of the green M&M and the reaction from some like Tucker Carlson? He spent a little bit too much time in Hungary. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. My only demand when I make my TV appearances is that in the green room, I have only a bowl of red M&Ms and mm. all the other colors get removed. That's it. That's the only thing I know about <laughs> M&Ms. A very Aussie What the Aussie. hell? This was like a key uh, uh, segment of Tucker Carlson? Uh, Marlene, explain this to me. You uh, know, I don't know. So the Mars company, the company that you know owns M and M's, decided that in in a in a push to put uh, in a global push um, towards inclusivity. Okay, to inc- make people humans feel included by candy, they were going to change the shoes of the green M M&M and M because I still don't understand the reason. I don't know how. Um, Changing from sexy boots on M&M to sensible shoes includes anybody or promotes diversity or inclusivity. I don't understand but, but it. But didn't they ever hear the song, These Boots Are Made For Walking, by <laughs> one of your favorite uh, performers of all time? Nancy Sinatra. That's, that's right. right. Well, these sneakers Did they ever apparently... hear of Don't Change What Ain't Broken? And what no one asked them to do, it's not like they were under fire for their, you know, lack of diversity in their, like, candy characters. It's like somebody came along and decided that Eminem needed... Just so I'm clear, the change is she was wearing boots and now she's wearing sneakers? Is Correct. that it? Okay. Got that it. is it. And then, and then, and then there was, and then her, like, motto is something about, you know, being a, a woman who, like, helps other women or supports women or... But how was she not supporting women in boots? Uh, you, you got me, Josh. Uh, who cares? I don't think anybody cares except for the uh, elite class here. And I think this is a move to signal compliance with this new uh, agenda of uh, doing the whole woke thing. And I don't think the average person even cares. But they had to go through the process, the, the Mars company, right, had to go through the process of signaling to the elites that – we're on board with you, and we're willing to do more of the type of thing you're asking us to do. Right, but but then why does Tucker spend so much time responding to a change in footwear? I mean, why does he care? Well, I think that it's um, this move is evidence of the of the corporations of corporate America of um, support for the woke movement, and of course, Tucker Carlson is quite against that. Right, he's so very I think he's asleep. he's calling out. This uh, this uh, I, I virtue see. signaling. Uh, I see. Remember, before the three of you were birthed, I remember the first time women came on TV and started advertising products, and they were not wearing bras. Mm. You could tell. It's outrageous. That <laughs> that was an attempt to overthrow the government. Insurrection <laughs> by the hippies. I'm telling you, the now crowd, uh, Gloria Steinem, and I forget the other one. Who is uh, at the head of it? Uh, with, the CIA agent. Yeah, uh, Valerie Plame is the No, no, CIA agent. Come on, don't you know trivia time here? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> I have to look that one up. No, obviously not. Uh, all right, let me let me let me ask you your collective opinion on this. You know, before the pandemic, uh, there was you know homeschooling was a relatively relatively small segment of the scholastic population. But when schools shut down in March of twenty. 2020, you saw the population of homeschoolers skyrocket, uh, some because of remote learning. And now that, you know, kids are able to go back to school in a lot of places, a growing number of families in places like California and across the whole country have chosen to keep 
homeschooling. There's a lot of reasons for it. Some are socioeconomic. Some are political. Some people think uh, they don't like the what schools are doing in terms of implementing COVID safety protocols. Some people think the schools are not doing enough to implement COVID safety protocols. But uh, these parents, left wing, right wing, East Coast, West Coast, they want to take control of their children's education at a time when uh, control feels elusive to a lot of people. Josh, I know you were homeschooled for at least a part of your scholastic career. Tell me what you think of this movement towards homeschooling and what, what it portends for the future of America's youth. Frank, the irony of the situation is that I hated being homeschooled. Because, as you can imagine, uh, you're missing out on a lot of the, uh, the social interactions and opportunities. Well, I did a 180 on this in the last two years. Because when you look at what's gone on with the, let's start with the critical race theory, and um, we can call it abuse uh, with the mask mandates, etc. Um, and then as we see that we're trying to separate parents from even being aware of what's being taught in the curriculum. And... This was said my whole life to me. I'm only starting to appreciate it that this is now breeding ground for the new uh, the new generation of uh, what the ruling class wants to be their voters and their constituents and support for their new uh, methods and ideas. And uh, I'm not on board with it. I think homeschooling is a good way to protect against that. Uh, Curtis, as somebody that uh, had a pretty detailed education platform in his recent run for mayor, what do you what do you think about this nationwide movement towards the growing popularity of homeschooling? I attribute it to the slop that's being served in cafeterias across <laughs> America because you don't get basic food that kids want anymore. It all gets chucked into the wastebasket. Ever since Michelle Obama declared that everything on your tray has to be green, has to be a vegetable, cannot be a carbohydrate, cannot be meat, God forbid meat. Kids don't want to eat in the cafeteria. I have three sons. They don't want to eat cafeteria food. That's why homeschooling is so important. So the uptick in vegetables in school cafeterias has led to... It's uh, turned off a whole generation who want to go to school. Interesting, interesting. You know, I could tell by your commentary how little sleep you've had over the last 48 hours. <laughs> but it's true. I asked my two proportion. younger sons, right? Carter, who's 13, just had his bar mitzvah on Hunter. I said, Mazel do you, Right. Do you ever actually eat the food in the cafeteria? No. No, uh, I, I'd rather be, it, bring a bag lunch. No, bag lunch hasn't, that hasn't been a term like that since the 1950s. Uh, Marlena, are you persuaded by Curtis's very persuasive argument that the <laughs> uptick in homeschooling is due to cafeteria food choices? No, I'm actually going to lean towards Josh on this one. It's definitely because of, um, you know, things like critical race theory and like the thing we talked about last week, which was the uptick in what kids should know when it comes to sex ed and the the graphic nature of it all by the age of 10 and people don't want to be want to be burdened with this and they and they go up against the school boards and the school boards are up against the unions or they're in bed with the unions and they don't want to lose their funding and so it's just like this nasty bureaucratic like horror show but at the same time i don't know anybody who would choose homeschooling over sending their kids to school i mean you would have to find a different way to school your kids. I I would, because I don't think my kids would learn anything if I was their teacher. I actually know they wouldn't, because when they had to go home, when they were forced to go home during 2020 unnecessarily, um, I didn't know... 
I, I, I'm not, I, I, like, I cannot, I couldn't handle the homeschool thing. You know, it's funny. Uh, a couple of callers called in during, uh, you know, the whole debate about remote learning due to COVID, and they said it's child abuse, essentially. The keeping them home is child abuse. And then a, a couple of callers called in and said, well, if it's, if it's child abuse, then isn't everybody that's homeschooling their children guilty of child abuse? But, uh, well, that well, seems like a, like a general, like, sweep. But it's like, it, it, it's forcing kids, I mean, some people, the people who are choosing home, school I, I wouldn't necessarily call them child abusers i mean that's just their lifestyle choice but i just don't think forcing parents to keep their kids at home and away from their friends and and um all the things that happened back then um was healthy whatsoever for kids absolutely i think it used to be the holy rollers that had homeschool right uh, but it's changed now. You have secular parents right, exactly. uh, who are insisting on keeping their kids home because they just don't like what they're being exposed to, especially at such an early age like in elementary school, pre-K. You know, it's like all of a sudden, pre-K. CRT. What is CRT? So, Critical race theory. Net, on, the, on the whole, do you think the increase in homeschooling is a positive, a negative, or, or is it a little bit of both? I think it's a positive. A positive. What do you uh, think? You I, think it's I'm a negative? I'm going with negative. Yeah. Well, I, I'm for school choice. I say it's positive. All right. Okay. Um, want to ask your view on uh, – now, Marlena and Josh, you both have been very, very outspoken on uh, vaccine mandates and other issues related to uh, the vaccines. On CNN on Saturday, it was a fascinating discussion with Michael Smirkanish interviewing CNN's head medical guy, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And CNN in general, and Dr. Gupta specifically, they've been very, very pro-vaccine. They've been very, very pro-the-establishment message on, on COVID, whatever that message happens to be, and it has changed. This was Michael Smirkanish talking to Sanjay Gupta about this new study that shows that acquired immunity um, could actually provide better protection than vaccinations. Listen to Michael Smirkanish's question and uh, Dr. Gupta's response. Natural immunity or infection-acquired immunity is a thing. There's no question about it. Some, some diseases out there like measles, you get infected once, you probably have lifelong immunity. I think the challenge here is that not all infections are the same. A, a older person who had mild symptoms when they got this disease may not have generated the same amount of antibodies as a young person who got really sick, for example, from this disease. So if you're, again, trying to combine public policy and public health and you've got to implement across hundreds of millions of people, do you say, look, the vaccine offers a more consistent, reliable, predictable amount of immunity versus people who say, look, I got infected, uh, I, I probably am protected, but I'm not sure how protected I really am. That, that's, that's the challenge here. So natural immunity is, is real. I don't think we've dealt with it very well in the United States as they have in other countries. And we may still get there. But the original sin, as, as we talked about last time on your program, Michael, is, is the lack of testing. We just don't have good eyes on, on the problem. So we don't know who's really been exposed in this country, who has natural yeah. immunity, who doesn't. Uh, Josh, let me begin with you. Give me your take on this initial study regarding what uh, what they call natural immunity or acquired immunity, what it suggests, and uh, give me your take on the reaction of somebody like Dr. Gupta. Well, I think this was a big, a big eye-opener for us. Um, we saw that with this uh, study that was actually released by the CDC, that uh, in New York State, in California, where the subjects were, were studied, that those that were unvaccinated but had gotten the disease 
were three to five three to five times more protected against another case of the virus than those that were vaccinated, and that turns its whole this whole argument on its head right now, because we've been fed this story for the for over a year about how. The vaccinated are protected and the unvaccinated are dangerous. And this does not show us any of that. In fact, those that are vaccinated, uh, unvaccinated, but had the virus have many times more protection than uh, the vaccinated do and um, far more than uh, the vaccinated alone. And if you're vaccinated and if you had the virus, you had a little bit more protection than if you had the virus, but were unvaccinated. But it's not a huge difference. And this completely changes the conversation, I think. And uh, Dr. Gupta here was speaking about how uh, when you're considering a strategy for millions of people, we want something that really covers effectively. And he's saying the vaccine is that. But we know the vaccine is not that because there are so many breakthrough cases. We really can't say the vaccine is effective anymore. Uh, Marlena, in other countries, they let uh, they let the people with natural immunity. They they go to restaurants and do all sorts of things. Are we almost at a point where people like you the unvaccinated masses who've recovered from COVID will soon be able to enter a New York City restaurant or a bar. Oh, well, that would be up to Eric Adams. OK, but as far as um, as far as what he as far as what that what they were talking about, this is this drives me insane. I have been beating my head against the wall about immunity and people's own like personal choice, whether or not they just want to get vaccinated. It goes beyond what the CDC recommends. I don't. It's fine. I get the CDC was trying to help the situation. I understand that we were in a quote unquote pandemic. But what happened here is that basically they were saying to everyone that if you get vaccinated, you're doing the right thing. If you don't get vaccinated, you're doing the wrong thing. And then all of these mandates came out and everybody who stood on my side of the table saying, no, I should have a choice. This is my body. I should be able to choose what I put in my body. We were vilified. Okay, now, and, and a study came out of Israel, and no one, everyone ignored it. Same same results, that the, 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 the people who had COVID, which had way more immunity against the variants and everything else, but no one ignored it. Now the CDC comes out and says it. And now, it's like all the virtue signalers have to go home. You're defeated. You're defeated. You have to stop yelling at the people who don't want to get vaccinated. And where is the justification for the mandates now that it's proven that anyone who's vaccinated can contract and transmit the vaccine, I mean, the, the virus. But the data does show you're l- less likely to get hospitalized and die. If that you're has nothing to do right? with me, though. Mm-hmm. If I am unvaccinated and you're vaccinated, my my vaccination status has nothing to do with your wellness and whether or not your vaccine's going your vaccine's not going to work better whether i'm vaccinated or not yeah. so no i have no where is qualms the justification about hugging and we already know it's unconstitutional we already know that but where's the now where's the 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 narrative and the justification and the lies to support the mandates that are ongoing curtis is the uh, only other vaccinated person in the room what say you i didn't get my boosters I had to get vaccinated to run for mayor. Yeah. I would have been dead on arrival. But as you remember, Frank, I quite, didn't wear a mask. Quite, quite literally. I held out wearing a mask. Remember, Channel 4 cold busted me in the subways not wearing a mask. The I-team cold busted me. Because I didn't believe in wearing masks. And you know, if anybody should have had COVID, it should have been me. I was taking care of emotionally disturbed and homeless people in Penn Station at the beginning of the lockdown uh, and the pandemic when secular and religious groups fled because they were terrified that they would end up in the ER and the ICU. So I think without any medical evidence that I had a natural immunity. I should have had it 10 times over. I didn't. But you say to yourself now, 
They want booster after booster after booster. Look at Israel. They want a fourth shot, fifth shot. Uh, big farmers making a hell of a lot of money here. I mean, uh, billions and billions and billions. Right. I've never heard of a vaccine where you have to get so many vaccines and so many boosters. Like flu vaccine, right, once a year. What other vaccine do you get in which you have to have multiple vaccines and booster, 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 like your booster bag that you had at the wedding? Yeah. Wait, well, but, but, but Curtis, no, seriously, though, like Eric Adams is upholding this, you know, 11th hour mandate that de Blasio did on the way out with the passports and and um, and. And it's like, why is that not going away? Why is that being upheld when clearly people who are vaccinated can transmit the virus just as much as someone who's unvaccinated? What would you say? Well, I'll give you a perfect example. When when we voted on November 2nd, you didn't have to show any personal ID. You didn't have to have a vaccine passport, right? Right. Gymnasiums, a lot of people there breathing the same air, exhaling. Go across the street, get a sandwich, something to drink. Got to show a personal ID and vaccine passport. How ridiculous these rules and regulations. And the reason they don't roll them back is they hide behind the medical authorities. Instead of saying, this makes no sense. We got to open up this city. We're crushed. Look at this city. It's empty. There's nobody in the city. But the medical authorities are saying it doesn't matter. It, we're going to continue with this in just a minute. Uh, Josh O'Brien is here. Marlena Shivo here. And uh, as because it's uh, an open microphone on WABC, Curtis Lee is here as he's been <laughs> since about Friday morning. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll try and squeeze in a couple of your calls. Uh, we'll continue with our midnight panel straight ahead. WABC. Sinatra, the former anthem of the green M&M. These boots are made for walking. This is the other side of midnight. Hey, we've got an action-packed show for you. Uh, coming up in just about a half hour, I'm going to tell you what uh, new information has been revealed regarding Elliot Spitzer and a Russian uh, prostitute that he was caught with about six years ago. This information just coming to light now, and it's pretty interesting. We're going to go over that. Uh, also, we are going to go live to Ukraine at 3.30, where you're going to hear from, in eastern Ukraine, where they're evacuating Americans, a Texan communist who is fighting with the Ukrainian separatists. Uh, 4.30, Michelle Caruso Cabrera is going to be here. 
She says it's time for people to come back to work in person. And uh, in about an hour from now, we're going to talk Bigfoot with an expert on the subject. But for now, we have three very passionate, very opinionated people in studio. A former mayoral candidate and a radio talk show host, my colleague here at WABC, Curtis Lewa. We have a personal trainer, master personal trainer and uh, astrology enthusiast and podcaster, Josh O'Brien, and uh, satirist and social critic Marlena Shivo here as well. Now, we were talking a lot about vaccines a minute ago. Yet Today was the March on Washington. This was a uh, march organized by Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s group uh, opposing vaccine mandates. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. spoke, and a lot of people were very fired up about this. Now, you compare... The messaging at this uh, rally, or yeah, I guess it was technically yesterday, at this rally yesterday with what we were hearing from people like Congressman Richie Torres, New York Democrat, on Bill Maher's HBO show on Friday. This is what Richie, Richie Torres said on Bill Maher. The data is crystal clear, and this is beyond dispute, that the deaths and hospitalizations have been overwhelmingly concentrated among the unvaccinated. If you are fully vaccinated, okay. yes. you have but, a far lower risk of infection and hospitalization and death. Uh, Marlena, let me begin with you because okay. you are a Mar enthusiast. Uh, I, I am. I am Marlena. But I honestly don't understand what his point is. Why, why do you, if you're vaccinated, why do you care about people who are unvaccinated? It has nothing to do with your health. I just said that. It's like, I if I go into the hospital... Why does that affect you in any way, shape or form? Why is it so why are they so desperate to get everybody vaccinated? Like we said before the break, the CDC has come out and said, if you're vaccinated, you can still transmit the vaccine. So the idea that you were getting a vaccine to protect grandma, to protect your beloved teacher unions and everybody else is Gone. It is blown out of the water. So all of you, right, you crazy can, virtue signal. You signalers, can still be a carrier if you're vaccinated. You can be a carrier. You can be. Uh, you you can get it. You can transmit it as just as much as somebody who isn't vaccinated. So why are they still? beating this drum over and over again. Josh, I didn't see you at that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. rally in Washington on Sunday. Uh, oh, wait, before you go to Josh, though, can I, Josh, okay, the rally, right, was against the mandates, the mandates, okay, but the, the mainstream media keeps calling it an anti-vaccine march, which is so misleading and so gross, but go ahead. Why weren't yeah, well, you at the march? <laughs> as, uh, as frequently the case, it's a mischaracterization, like, uh, she just said, um, it's not about anti-vaccination. It's about anti-mandate. Vaccination is fine. Uh, a mandate is unconstitutional, and it's in, it's uh, not uh, in it's not consistent with humanitarian uh, values. And uh, just to go back uh, in this conversation, Bill Maher had with uh, Richie Torres um, when Richie Torres stated that there's a reduced chance of dying from COVID. Bill Maher said, "I'm not saying it's not a good reason, meaning get the vaccine." meaning it's prevention from supposedly dying from COVID. He said, I'm not saying it's not a good reason. Uh, it counteracts the argument, however, that we need a vaccine to protect other people. It actually protects you, is what Bill Maher said. It doesn't protect you from me. It doesn't protect me from getting it. It protects you. So it's really just about you now. And that was a very cogent way of sort of characterizing this whole argument now, which is the conversation about, my vaccination status being a threat to your safety is now off the table. Right. It's gone. Right. And Bill Maher, 
uh, in his infinite wisdom as a contrarian picked up on that. And although he's still supporting the vaccines and everything uh, that the, the, the government is doing, I think he understands that the mandate is now not necessary because we should have freedom over our own bodies. Curtis, your thoughts on the vaccine march, the vaccine mandate march, and the messaging we're hearing from people what like the hell they were claiming it was going to be January 6th. Every time I've ever been at any of these rallies, it's mostly mothers who have followed RFK who believed initially before the pandemic and lockdown, before we had COVID, that vaccines might have caused their children to have autism, Asperger's syndrome, right? So there were all these mothers there. They got sharpshooters up there on buildings, January 6th, an insurrection, a takeover of America. The hell are these people talking about? It's people exercising their right of free speech, and they were making them out as if all of a sudden they were oath keepers, proud boys, one percenters. Uh, what a shame. Shame on the media for even perpetuating that nonsense. Shame right. on them. Um, we heard from the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, on Friday. She was speaking at a press briefing about the failure to pass supposed voting rights le- legislation. This is what she said, and uh, this is the advice that she gave to people who were upset about the Senate's failure to adopt voting rights legislation. I mean, just a year ago, there were more people who were opposed to filibuster changes in the Senate. So we've made some progress on that front, but we've got to stay at it. So my advice to everyone out there who's frustrated, sad, angry, pissed off, feel those emotions, go to a kickboxing class, have a margarita, do whatever you need to do this weekend, and then wake up on Monday morning. We've got to keep fighting. Uh, Marlena. I love how... Mm. The that sh- the what White are you House a green M M&M and M there. What is that? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I'm, I'm boycotting the green M&M. Green M&M. or red? <laughs> um, I love how the White House is now recommending, um, you know, to uh, exercise. The, up until this point, it's stick a needle in your arm to be healthy. But now, if you're if you're angry, go to a kickboxing class. This is absurd, just in general. Like I, I don't even know. She doesn't sound very bright. I feel like. All along, she's kind of sounded decent. She's in a tough spot, though, right? When you're, you're Joe Biden's press secretary, <laughs> right? I mean, you're the spokesperson for Joe Biden, who's had a tough year right. as well, president, right? I think I mean, that all press secretaries have a tough That's true. That's or in true. a tough spot. Um, however, um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are, are like, yeah, I don't have access to a kickboxing class, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I just think it's ridiculous. Like, wh- where where's the advice on um, how to... Um, how to like decompress, um, or how to how to be healthier um, when it comes to COVID? Well, it has to be- uh, Josh is Marlena taking Jen Psaki a little too seriously. It well, seems I, like I, kind I, of a flippant I, comment that maybe maybe well, we're reading too much into. I think she deserves it. I mean, that's, Jen that's, that's kind does. of it. That's kind of it. Yeah, of course. Like I didn't lose sleep over this, but I did think it was a little bit ridiculous to even like suggest it, and then. And then she suggests alcohol. <laughs> I'm sure all the alcoholics are going to come out of the woodwork and, and yell about that eventually on Curtis, Twitter. is this another green M&M situation? Are we making uh, a mountain Let me just say Jen Psaki has the toughest job in America. Three times a day she has to walk back what Joe Biden has said earlier in the day. I mean, think of that. Three times sometimes in a day. But I'm in favor of the filibuster. Not for all the reasons that were given by the Senate legal beagles. As a husband... Having been under cross-examination for years, I've had to use the filibuster in not answering questions accurately, clearly, straightly. I have filibustered my way through many marriages. (laughs) And I needed 60%. 
<laughs> in order to survive. Uh, it's too bad you couldn't filibuster your way into the mayoral seat. Exactly. Well, I did true. that, too. That's true. I want to make one more comment about Bill uh, Maher's commentary on this. And this is a quote. Uh, he said this at the end, and he said, and about the science, because, of course, that's how Bill Maher speaks, and about the science. This is, I think, where Democrats look bad. Where the people of science, of course, that's what he says, where the people of science, and then a lot of what they do has nothing to do with science. There's so much mindless bureaucracy. It's stupid. And, of course, that's at what we're all seeing at this point. These studies are coming out. It's now stupid. Uh, Josh, you know, the last the last time when I introduced you to um, Mayor Giuliani, the last time that we hung out, all I had to tell uh, Rudy Giuliani was uh, this is my brother in law, Josh. He does a podcast where he talks a lot about how the 2020 election was stolen. Rudy Giuliani fell over himself, said, I got to come on there. You got to have me on. But you got to be careful because everybody that has me on gets banned from YouTube and everywhere else. Mike Lindell. The founder of the or the creator of the MyPillow, the CEO of the MyPillow company, a friend of mine, he is claiming that his bank accounts have been suspended. Is this tied to his advocacy for, you know, a, a redoing the 2020 election? Absolutely. Uh, he was actually, I would say, one of President Trump's largest supporters and actually uh, bankrolled a lot of the investigation and challenge uh, after the 2020 election. And um, he's been uh, persecuted uh, uh, nonstop since then. And this is simply another move by the uh, powers behind the Democratic Party, the powers behind uh, uh, this whole issue with the uh, election. And uh, he's not going to give into it, but it, it's, it's only another major inconvenience and, and another persecution. Uh, Curtis, it was reported that Mike Lindell was saying – Possibly as many as 300 million people were involved in this election conspiracy. Your take on uh, sort of the backlash to those that are advocating that the 2020 election was stolen. Well, first off, he's claiming his bank accounts were frozen. That's because he didn't pay his bills. That's what creditors do. Uh, Having been been down that road many times, you get a call. Uh, I went to withdraw money. Your bank account is frozen. Lawyers are on. Right, no, we get paid first before the surgeons. And I said, no, I got to pay the surgeons because if I'm not alive, I can't pay the lawyers. So I would bet you Mike Lindell has had all kinds of problems getting financing and can't keep up with the payments. So they froze in his bank accounts. Number two, and I've told my Kumbani Cheech, Rudy Giuliani, you heard me. I don't believe the Dominion smartmatic thing. Joe Biden is the president. I didn't vote for him. I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for Brock Pierce. But we have to accept the results. Time to move on. Uh, if you want to get reelected, run the next time around. By the way, how did it make you feel that Brock Pierce cozied up so quickly to Eric Adams, even though you endorsed Brock Pierce for president? Yeah, not only that, gave $100,000 to his slush I home. saw that. I so saw Eric that. Adams gives back a $2,000 political contribution because now he's getting paid in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, which Brock Pierce has made a ton of money on. But the $100,000 that he gave to a slush fund, he didn't give that back. But, uh, did you get $100,000 for the Guardian Angel? I got Ugats. Uh, <laughs> I got Bubkiss. Uh, Marlena, any uh, any th- I, I believe you are, I don't want to mischaracterize you, you are a regretful Biden voter, oh, right? You I were was... a hesitant Biden voter, and now you're a gr- regretful Biden oh. voter. Is that a fair characterization? Well, I never wanted to vote for him. I was going to not even vote for president. I was going to go down ballot and just skip president altogether. I was going to write in Chris Christie. And then I got into the booth and I thought, okay, well, I got to vote for somebody because now I just feel like an idiot because no matter what, I'm throwing away the vote. 
So, yeah, of course. I didn't even want to vote for Biden. I didn't want to vote for either one of them. I, I can't stand either one of them before, now, and tomorrow. Do you feel can't. bad for Mike Lindell for his bank accounts being suspended here? Um, no, I don't. I don't have a lot of feelings towards. I didn't like his pillow very much. So you I'm, didn't. I'm, I'm, I'm soured on really? Mike. Okay, Lincoln. I like the my pillow. I will say. I know you gave me one. That. And That's then, right. Yeah, yes, and, and I um, gave it away. All right. Uh, uh, very quickly before we before we take another quick break, I want to get your collective take on the uh, what we're seeing from the NFL. The television ratings are through the roof. Uh, they're up dramatically. The, the all season was up. The playoffs are up hugely. From last year and the year before that, even though fewer and fewer people have conventional television, what do you think the reason is behind the uptick in uh, NFL viewership? Is this all just a reflection of people wanting to see the no. unvaccinated Aaron Rodgers be no, tackled? No, because they're not doing the Black Lives Matter thing anymore. You know, you notice you don't see that anymore. On the gridiron. You don't see them all holding one another, taking a knee. You don't see them wearing jerseys, Black Lives Matter. You don't see them putting the fist. It's back to traditional smash-mouth football the way it should always have been. Instead of that fake, phony, fraudulent football they spell with a U, soccer, that I hate, I loathe, I despise. Uh, did you, oh, do you have a pick for the Super Bowl? Uh, yes, I have a pick. What, what is your pick? What, 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 what do I have to tell you what, for? Uh, you tell the audience. What, are you going to bet on my pick? Is no, that no, now that I'm you have bet legal, against your Now pick. you have legal sports That's betting? Right. I'm going to bet against your pick. Well, I would have picked Green Bay, but Aaron Rodgers upset me. Well, so I have to reconfigure it. Well, now. they're out. Now. And as you know, I was against the Buffalo Bills because their fans were called the Bills Mafia. That's uh, that's right. Uh, so you're not making a pick. You're not. I'm not making a pick. All right, I'm I, out of it. Josh, me out. Why is everybody watching football again? I think it's a rebound from the craziness we've, we've had for the last two years. And as Curtis just said, I think the BLM uh, theme wasn't helping for a while either. And a lot of people, myself, tuned out for that reason. So uh, things have gotten a little bit more quiet, and uh, it's time to enjoy football again. Uh, Mar- do you have a pick for the Super Bowol? I couldn't care less. Yeah, uh, Marlena. <laughs> Um, I think that football is the real pandemic in this country. You don't like football? Um, I think I liked football at one point, and then fantasy football became such a thing. Uh, I can't stand listening to people talk uh, about their fake football teams. I am with you on that To the one. point where I'm so turned off, I just can't be bothered anymore. Well, so. that seems like kind of an di- unproportional re- reaction. <laughs> well, you know me and gambling. Yeah. I am not a fan. Josh, you're, you're, you have two brothers that are very into this fantasy football. It is annoying, isn't it? It's uh, it's very time-consuming. It if is. those are not interested, it's pretty uh, boring. Right. I mean, It's it- boring. And also, there are people that I know that are more than one team like they're in two different like draft like they have to go to two different drafts drafts really well the the predecessor to all this again before any of you were birthed was a game called stratomatic baseball it's all about that you know fantasy baseball and it was a hit for a while and then all of a sudden all these fantasy leagues came along in all different sports and let's face it people get a vicarious thrill out of this uh, they have uh, jock syndrome. They use Desinex, <laughs> and they play fantasy football all day. But yeah, with Stratomatic Baseball, you didn't have these kind of bizarre, time-consuming fantasy drafts like Marlene is talking about. It's a big event for these people. Frank, I mean, it's Frank, big. I mean, how many years do guys live in a fantasy world where they're imagining all the women that they would be with, right? <laughs> and they got nothing from that. Yeah, well, you know what? They, Says now, the person running around in a beret so, with, because, a, because they with need, a band of commando vigilantes. <laughs> Says the man with four wives. Yeah. No, but, and so, counting. And counting. Um, 
So, no, but, yeah, these men don't have women to go to, so now they have to fill their lives with um, fantasy football. And now now their spouses want nothing to do with them because all they talk about is fantasy football, so they have to join a second team of fantasy It is really bizarre, though. It's almost cultish, the fantasy football. Almost? It's uh, pretty pretty close to that. All right, I'll tell you what. You didn't uh, ask me my my Super Bowl pick. Well, I I got got turned off by these two. How sexist of you. How misogynist of you. You are so unwoke. All right, so... Give me your pick. Who are you picking? I'm just hoping for another wardrobe malfunction at, ah, at the halftime. That's uh, well, it. That's, that's all I care That's about. the one thing that brings everybody together, right? <laughs> all right. Um, by the way, we're going to continue with Curtis Lee with Marlena Shivo and Josh O'Brien in just a bit. You can find Josh on Instagram. You can find uh, Curtis on uh, WABCRadio.com. You can also hear the podcast he does with his son, Anthony. And you can hear Marlena Shivo in, mostly here, but you can also find her on social media, Marlena, S-C-H-I-A-V-O. On all forms of social media. But uh, something in addition to wardrobe malfunctions, which should bring everybody together, is the desire for better digestive health. And if you want to do yourself a favor and uh, have, I'll call it better bowel movements, BBM, then you need to think about life change tea at getthetea.com. It gets all the junk that's in your system out of your system. It also gives you a ton of energy without caffeine. Trust me, as somebody that didn't get a lot of sleep and is now getting even less, I can't imagine keeping these crazy hours without life change tea. No caffeine, all natural, non-GMO. One package will last you an entire month. Comes in three great flavors, but you can only get it if you go to the website getthetea.com. Getthetea.com. If you use the promo code FRANK, you'll get to enjoy free shipping. Promo code FRANK. You'll feel some relief. And while you're there, check out all their other great products designed for your optimum health. We just ordered some melatonin on there for the days where, you know, it's, it's tougher to fall asleep when it's uh, sunny out, when it's bright out. So I take a couple of these melatonins I purchased at uh, GetTheTea.com. But they have vitamin C. They have bee pollen. They have colostrum. Whatever it is that you want to purchase to in terms of supplements, get it at GetTheTea.com. But make sure you use the promo code FRANK so that you can get that free shipping on whatever you get anywhere in the continental United States. GetTheTea.com. It is the tea that makes you go. W-A-B-C. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined in studio by Josh O'Brien, Marlena Shivo. And Curtis Lewa, we're going to try and run through some of your calls as quickly as we can. Give us a call um, at 1-800-848-9222. Five open lines if you want to jump on board. That's 800-848-WABC. Before we totally close the door on COVID, uh, let me ask your view about uh, this situation involving Novak Djokovic at the Australian Open. He was not permitted to compete at the Australian Open because of his vaccination status, and uh, some people are very upset, not the least of which is Mr. Djokovic himself. Josh, uh, your take on the Australian Open gate. Uh, I think that the situation with Novak right now is that the powers that be do not want any uh, any, uh, appearance of being okay with not being vaccinated. Right, he's been very verbal about not being vaccinated. He's been a proponent of abstaining from that, and uh, when he, although you could argue he's the number one in the world right now, and he's won the tournament before, they wanted no part of him. 
And um, although the tennis organization actually said at some point, you can come in and compete, uh, the Australian government said no. And I want to make a quick comment about this because um, it's come to light in the aftermath of this whole situation that they're not even doing any significant COVID testing at the event. Wow. And that leads to a very important question, which is, um, does, it, does this suggest that the government is more focused on controlling the public's perception of the vaccines than it is on actually preventing the spread of the virus? And I would say that that's been pretty obvious since, th- since this thing has started. And um, this is just another another. Uh, incident that shows where the true focus really is. Curtis, I know you're a big tennis fan. Uh, give me your take on this. I hate it. I Australian hate Open I hate golf, but I want to be very consistent. I've always sided against the Serbs in the battle as to who discovered radio, the Italian Marconi or Tesla. I always said it was Marconi. So I want to remain consistent. When all of a sudden they were partitioning up Bosnia Herzegovina, I was against Milosevic. I stood with my Croats and my Albanian brothers and sisters. So on this, I stand against Josevic. Josevic, uh, whatever. Marlena, are you uh, pulling for Djokovic in this uh, battle to be able to be an unvaccinated tennis player? I, I am, but I have a, a way more important pressing issue right now, mm. and it has to do with Curtis. Oh boy. Curtis, I asked you this years ago, and you never actually answered me, and I kind of need an answer. I want to know, do you have a beret for seven days of the week, like seven berets, or do you just keep recycling I the same beret? I think you can beret? smell the beret that he's wearing <laughs> over now. And over again. So I think uh, we know the answer to On that the one. advice of counsel, I take the fifth. <laughs> All right. Uh, Never going to get an answer. As many of Frank's friends are always taking the fifth. This is true. 800-848-WABC. Let me get your take collectively on the uh, rule changes from the NCAA in terms of transgender sports. Uh, There's a transgender swimmer, uh, Leah Thomas, and evidently uh, she, she is still the source of a great deal of controversy. There's been a cacophony of criticism that began in December about her record-setting performance in Ohio at something called the Zippy International. Critics have argued that Thomas, a transgender woman, shouldn't be allowed to compete in the women's category. The NCAA's new rule says they're going to take it on a sport-by-sport basis. Uh, Marlena, your reaction to the new NCAA rules or anything related to Well, this? you know, th- saying that they're going to take it by a sport by sport is like cherry picking um, this issue. As far as being transgendered and on the team of the, the side that you have switched over to, it can be really tough um, for women's sports because men are physically stronger than women um, as much as any woman hates to admit that it's the truth and so even though yes you identify as a woman but you you're still born with your um, male strength so I feel like it's not fair and even though that's not a popular opinion because it sounds like I'm unwoke about this issue um, at least I know Caitlyn Jenner agrees with me yeah it's um, a great it, interview with our colleague Rita Cosby on Thursday on this subject as well so it, it's tough it's it's tough what say you, Josh? I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, I'm an exercise physiologist myself. We study the human body, and like we just heard, clearly the male body being born in its male form forms in a manner that's stronger than the female body. And we don't really need to look much further than all the records that are being broken in these female sports. And to think that this political sphere, uh, or this game being fought in the political sphere about the uh, – the transgender issue, 
Uh, it has no place in sports. And the female athletes feel that way. Many of them are very, very verbal about that. And it's a shame that it persists, persists to this point, despite the fact it's clear that they have uh, an, a, a, a huge advantage. Curtis, uh, critics of this new NCAA policy are saying this was a rushed process that uh, basically was just the NCAA caving to external pressures and wanting stricter regulations following the success that Leah Thomas was having. Any well, I noticed you failed to mention the, the other transgender who goes to Yale who beat your transgender. That's right. You had no comment about that, right? <laughs> nobody was in your. By the way, nobody was at that meet watching. That was the most incredible thing. You would think, with all the interest on transgenders participating, the swim hall would have been all full. Nobody was there. Nobody cares, Frank. I'm not going to a swimming meet to see transgenders who claim, oh, I feel like a woman, but I'm a man. Cheat. This is like Aroid cheating using steroids. Very quickly, I want to squeeze in as many of these calls as we can. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. Hello. A quick question I want to ask all of your uh, guests, and I think you may have touched upon it, is given the terrible problems of inflation and supply chain issues and possible war with Russia and Ukraine and uh, President Biden's terrible performance, uh, how many of you regret your vote and wish that President Trump was serving a second term right now? And Frank, Frank Morano knows I'm a strong Trump supporter. All right, Charlie. Uh, any regrets about your vote for Brock Pierce in 2020? No, no, I would not vote for even Trump. I would not your, vote for uh, Democrats. I, I would vote independent. But by the way, to, to appease Vladimir Putin, I would give him Brighton Beach. <laughs> give him Brighton Beach. Leave the king of all comedy alone, the leader of the Ukraine, the man who had quid pro quo with Donald Trump. It is Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Uh, Josh, who did you vote for in 2020? I voted for Trump, and I'm as happy now as the day I but, did it, and you, I hope you, I get happier switched, later on. You switched parties <laughs> to Democrat to vote for Tulsi Gabbard in the primary, I right? I did. I did that early on, and obviously she got uh, torpedoed by her own party because uh, they were heading, having none of her own values. They had their own. So uh, I'm very happy that I voted for Trump, and I brag about it. Uh, Marlena, voters regret, re- voters remorse, rather. Of course. Yeah. So of you course. would have stuck with your initial instinct of writing in Chris Christie, it sounds like? Uh, yeah, pretty much, because um, the re- results would have been the same. Do you regret not transitioning to being a woman and competing in women's <laughs> yeah, sports, Yeah, because I could have actually done well in sports. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was a captain of the baseball team at Brooklyn Prep, and I only hit 200. Jo- imagine if I could have played girls softball. See, Josh, imagine <laughs> what you could have done as in the, in the female bodybuilding category if you would have just... I'm still considering it, friend. <laughs> the other, uh, at a time, those of you that are holding we'll get to you uh, throughout the course of the hour my thanks to curtis lewa josh o'brien and marlena shiva hopefully we can do this again soon all right uh don't go anywhere because there is some fascinating news regarding elliot spitzer and a a four words that he used actually i guess it's one two three four five six words that he used which nobody should ever say i'll tell you what they are in just a moment but first Here's the news with Jacqueline Carl. With Jacqueline Carl, why did you say, shake your head no when I said Jacqueline Carl, Matt? Why did you 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 look rushed to shake your head no? I thought you were going for the Frank Diaz. No, no, I see he doesn't have headphones on. He doesn't <laughs> look like he's in any condition to do the news. All right, here is Jacqueline Carl, who also says the Ukraine, uh, and, and in honor of my friend uh, Curtis Lewa, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population and have your dog or cats paid or neutered. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, you know I do try to be an honest broker and I try to give credit to people that deserve it. I try to give criticism to people that deserve it, irrespective of whether I happen to like them or happen to not like them. But uh, one, I would always say uh, over the course of the last – what year is it? Over the course of the last 12 years, by far my least favorite governor of all time – in New York, anyway, has been Andrew Cuomo by far. By just could not ever bring myself to vote for the guy. I thought he was a horrible governor. Did a terrible job. Did a couple of good things, but by and large, was just the personification of everything that's terrible. Before Andrew Cuomo was elected in 2010, though, the person who I thought was the worst governor in my lifetime was also the only governor I ever voted for. I always have a tendency of voting for losing gubernatorial candidates. Uh, 2002, I voted for Tom Galasano, for instance. I, I supported Galasano in all three of his bids for governor. Voted for uh, Christian Davis in 2010 for governor. Voted for Rob Astorino for governor in 2014. Mark Molinaro in 2018. So you get the sense of my track record for losing gubernatorial candidates. 2006 was an interesting year, right? I'll never forget. My first candidate in that race was Tom Golisano because he was talking about running this time not as an independent but running as a Republican. So I was all set. I was uh, waving the flag for Tom Golisano. Golisano chooses not to run. Then I decided to support Bill Weld. Bill Weld gets trounced at the Republican state convention by John Faso. He's out of the race before it begins. Then – I was supportive of Tom Swazi. Tom Swazi, who's now running again this year, Tom Swazi gets trounced in the Democratic primary for governor. And I'll never forget the call that I got from my, I was in the leadership of the state independence party at the time. And I got the call from um, uh, my friend, the chairman of the independence party, Frank McKay, who's also been a guest on the show. Frank McKay calls me and said, look, very important, Frank. He said, our candidate for governor, the state attorney general, Elliot Spitzer, is willing to give you any job in his administration that you want on one condition. I said, oh, well, what's that, Frank? The one condition is that you not support him for governor because he doesn't want to end up like all of your other gubernatorial candidates. Now, uh, lo and behold, I did make the mistake of voting for Elliot Spitzer, and his brief tenure as governor was just atrocious. I mean, we all know how it ended, but there was so much going on before that. The whole Troopergate scandal where he used the power of the state police to spy on his political enemies, including a, a great American like uh, like uh, Joe Bruno, this obsession that he had with giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens, the feuding 
thing with um, with the legislature, the refusal to work with the legislature, either party, his insistence that he was an effing steamroller. But of course, we remember how it all came to a head for him. It ended because even though he had prior he had uh, previously prosecuted people for prostitution, he himself was patronizing prostitutes. And uh, he ended up resigning. Now, I happen to not think it's a big deal if you patronize prostitutes. If you want to do that uh, in in private, I I don't care. I happen to actually think there's a strong case to be made for decriminalizing prostitution. However, when you're the governor, especially of a state like New York, especially if you had previously been throwing people in jail for this, you do open yourself up to things like blackmail if you're com- you know, committing these illegal activities. And at the time that Spitzer went, there was nobody who was sorry to see him go. Nobody. Nobody. Lo and behold, three years later, he tries to make a political comeback and run for New York City controller. And he just narrowly, narrowly misses doing the political comeback of all political comebacks. He was defeated by Scott Stringer, barely. So then anyway, 2016, it comes out that he was in some sort of a dispute with Russian beauty Svetlana Travis. Uh, Travis claims the two had a sexual relationship beginning in 2012 and that Spitzer regularly deposited money into her accounts. She alleges that the former governor choked her and threw her onto a bed after she refused sex and told him she was traveling back to Russia. Spitzer says that Travis was extor- was was extorting him and was having a breakdown at the plaza. And um, the we now why are we talking about this now? Well, there are now newly released internal NYPD records that have been provided to both the New York Daily News and the New York Post. And we now know more details of what the police said when they were asked to intervene in this dispute, this violent dispute, between Elliot Spitzer and Svetlana Travis. Daily News, Sunday. Newly obtained investigative documents reveal that former Governor Spitzer name-dropped a powerful friend named Bill to cops that were investigating a bloody encounter that he had with this Russian woman at the plaza. This is what Elliot Spitzer said to the cops when they arrived at his hotel room. And these are the six words that I don't think there's any excuse to ever say to anybody, okay? You never come out as a winner if you ever say these six words, because chances are you won't like the answer. (laughs) Spitzer said to the police, do you know who I am? Now, I can't stand when people say, do you know who I am? Because, number one, obviously the answer is no, because if, if what you're wanting is special treatment by saying, oh, I'm somebody, you should treat me better, then obviously the answer is no. If they were going to give you special treatment because of who you are or your status, they would have already. Two, it just sounds so incredibly pretentious. Now, not that I'm anybody, but I vow 
to go my entire life, whether I live for a day, or a decade, or 80 years more, more, I vow never to say the words, do you know who I am? I have never said it. I will never say it. I think it's absolutely insane. Now, uh, I would love to hear from you. Has anybody ever pulled that card with you? Has anybody ever said to you, do you know who I am? And then my question is, who were they? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. It was interesting. I think it was Chaz Palminteri I was doing an interview with a couple of months ago. And he said he got fired as a bouncer because somebody played the do you know who I am card with him. And it turned out they were actually somebody. And he didn't let them into whatever party it was. And he got fired. I think it turned out okay for Chaz Palminteri. Do you know who I am? Has anybody ever said it to you? Have you ever observed anyone saying it? What were the results? What were the circumstances? Tell me your story. One, two, three, four, five open lines. 800-848-9222. Interestingly enough, when Spitzer said after, do you know who I am? Oh, my goodness. How elitist. How pretentious. You, I mean, only somebody that's a lifelong silver spoon-fed child of privilege who's never really had to work to get his, to achieve his status would ever say the words, do you know who I am? But Spitzer then follows up with, do I need to call Bill? That is an apparent reference to the police commissioner at the time, Bill Bratton. So um, this is, to me, the most Spitzer-esque thing that you can do. A guy who has made his political bones as a champion of the working class, a champion of the underprivileged, a guy who's going to go at the sheriff of Wall Street, who's going to go after the big, bad Wall Street titans. By the way, I will point out that he's the sheriff of Wall Street. Somehow Bernie Madoff metastasized on his watch. He never noticed anything fishy about uh, billions of dollars of funds being Pilfered in a Ponzi scheme, the sheriff of Wall Street, please. Uh, this guy who claimed to have been a champion of the working class, the poor, the, those on the lower socioeconomic end, he basically, his first reaction was, do I need to call Bill? Not even, do I need to speak to the police commissioner? Or would you like me to speak to the commissioner? Do I need to call Bill? He feels the need to make clear to these poor cops that are just coming to the plaza to respond to a woman that he's choked and beaten up. He feels the need to make it clear to those police officers that he doesn't just know the police commissioner, but he knows the police commissioner so well that he can call him Bill. 800-848-WABC. Has anyone ever said to you, do you know who I am? On the Spitzer end of that story, there's some other interesting things that have been revealed. I am going to be joined on this subject in about 24 hours by Elliot Spitzer's old nemesis, Roger Stone. That is a conversation you're not going to want to miss. We're going to get into that in about 23 hours specifically. 800-848-WABC. Buddy in Brooklyn, has anybody ever said the words to you, do you know who I am? All the time. I used to be a cable guy in Manhattan. And all those, especially on the west side or on the east side, when I wouldn't do something that I wasn't supposed to. Oh, do you know who I am? Blah, blah, blah. One time, a very famous person, I will not 
uh, say who. She did that to me. She was an actress. And I said, oh, my God, you're right. I said, whatever happened to you? <laughs> well, you got to tell us who it was. Give us a hint at least, buddy. Uh, she, she was married to Timothy Hutton. Okay. It was, it was, yeah, it was years ago. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Now, did that ever work with you? Did anyone ever say, do you know who I am? And then you said, oh, well, okay, let me all of a sudden start treating you differently than I was a minute ago. No, because I, I didn't give a damn. Right, exactly. That I is would, why I, I, I can't imagine. You, everyone sees how ineffective those six words are. Do you know who I am? What I can't figure out is why people keep saying it. Because... It works with people in their circles. Uh, you, you know, know like it, it's the building people, but uh, people they have to do business with. It's just not. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about? Yeah. I used to say, you know, you got dementia or something. <laughs> Buddy, thank you. I, I see. I'll, again, I'll advert to my prior statement. Obviously, if somebody knew who you were and that was going to result in treating them differently, then they don't know. They don't know who you are. If you need to say the words, do you know who I am? Obviously, the answer is no. Um, maybe you could just come out and be a little more overt and say, look, I don't know if you know who I am, but I'm a very important person and you need to start treating me much better than you would anybody else. I've never in my life ever said the words. Do you know who I am? Not that I'm anybody, but nobody's anybody. Uh, I mean, just so stupid, so pretentious, so egregious. I would also love to hear from you if you're one of these people that says, do you know who I am? And has that ever worked for you? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Ken is in the Bronx. Ken, were you our big winner uh, of the uh, $1,000 Minute on Friday? That was me. Yeah, well, congratulations. You're something of a celebrity in uh, in talk radio circles these days. Have you decided how you're going to spend the $1,000 that you won on Friday yet? Not yet. Not yet, but it's going to be invested wisely. All right. Well, good. Pay a, of, pay a couple of bills. There give you go. Give a piece to my wife. Give a piece to the wife. There you well, go. Give a piece to the wife. <laughs> Very nice. Very anyway, nice. Yeah, smart. Anyway, I was in the military uh, in 1973 at Blackland Air Force Base in Texas. And there were about 10 of us recruits who were walking by. We had no stripes, anything. And a, a short tech sergeant comes up to us. Now, we hadn't recognized him. We hadn't paid attention. We were saluting everything with stripes on. And this is a short tech sergeant. And he said, do you know who I am? And one of us said, no. Don't you know who you are? <laughs> and I'll never forget that. <laughs> but th that's what I don't understand. Just to go back to my conversation with Buddy a minute ago. Um you're almost by saying those words, do you know who I am? You're almost inviting a snarky response, right? I mean, someone's either going to say what you said or they're going to say what Buddy said. Oh, do you have uh, dementia or something? Or you're just going to say, no, no, I don't. Well, we, I, what's we were, the value? We were, 18 year, we were 18 year old wise guys, so we didn't know. We were wise, wise kids, we didn't know. Yeah, but I, I think whatever the age is, you're not going to get a great response from that. Right. Of course. Of course. Of course. 
800-848-WABC. Neil on Staten Island. When was the last time you heard the words, do you know who I am? Frank, I never laughed so hard. You brought back a memory from oh, 30 years ago. I was driving a city official, and we had to go into Prospect Park. So there were uh, police barricades closing off the road to go into the park. So I got out of the car. I moved the barricade. I drove through. I put the barricade back behind me. And then a parks department vehicle pulls up and cuts me off. The guy gets out, and he starts screaming. He says, what the hell are you doing? So I rolled out the window. I said, I got so-and-so in the back of the car. So then my boss rolls down the window. He says, what's the problem here? He says, the park is closed. So he says, don't you know who I am? He says, I don't care who the hell you are. The park is closed. <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing there. I, I, I backed the car up, and I went around the guy, and I drove any, I drove off anyway because I had a right to be there. Uh, it turned out it was the borough president of Brooklyn. But it was, it was so funny I, to say that to the guy, and, uh, and he, I, you talk about being upset. He's running around all day. Who was this guy? I want this guy's name. I want this guy's name. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, just great, Frank. Well, what, now, which borough president was it? Howard Golden? Well, very interesting. Thank you, Neil. We always know who you are. 800-848-9222. Curious, have you ever heard the words, in real life, not in a movie, not in a book, have you ever heard the words, do you know who I am? What were the circumstances? And has it ever worked out for anybody? Clearly, it didn't really work out for Elliot Spitzer. I mean, I guess uh, he never went to jail for beating up this, this Russian woman, but... Uh, it doesn't seem like his bid for favorable treatment from the police worked. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I have never had anybody say that to me. And I worked in music publishing. I worked in the entertainment industry. I met a lot of famous people. I knew actors in the world. Shakespeare company that used to fall all over me. I guess I didn't say or do anything for them to say that, I would think. Yeah, well, I, I have a feeling you're treating everybody pretty nice, Carol. That's probably why that's the case. You know where this comes up a lot, and it's not just in the service industry. And uh, this, it's not just when you get pulled over for a traffic ticket and you're a movie star or a politician and you want special treatment. You don't want to get the ticket. You want to you want to be let off. You know where this comes up a lot. I've heard from some people that I know who have been involved with organized crime. This comes up a lot with gangsters. Gangsters love like tough guys and want to be tough guys. They love to play this card of saying to other gangsters, do you know who I am? And I am yet to hear a story of the person that that was being said to saying, oh, no, I didn't know who you were. Let me all of a sudden not give you a hard time. Usually it only results in escalating of a situation. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? How's everything? Everything yeah, is. Hearing, everything you know, would be better. About everything you, would be sir. better if you turned your radio off, Simon. Oh, I'm so sorry. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, I'm, I have both of them on. I mean, don't you know who I am, Simon? You can't call yeah, me with yeah, your radio yeah, yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, it's off. So okay. um, basically, you know, it brings back memories. I remember Elliot Spitzer. This is going back 2006, right? 
Uh, well, he was elected. Uh, he was elected governor in 2006. The the scandal that cost him his governorship was 2008. His this incident of him beating up his Russian girlfriend was in 2016. Oh, okay. But the first time it was in the the whole story with the hotel in Washington D.C. That whole yeah, the scandal the that cost him his governorship was 2008. Yes. Yeah, that that was a sad story. Just brings back memories, and uh, I, I just think you know. What we what we're going what we had with uh, Como and then this one, I think we should have we should, we I think governors whoever wants to go for a governor in any any um any big position you need to show like a business a, someone who knows the business side of like a CEO you just can't pick anybody from the street to be a CEO of McDonald's or Pfizer yeah you uh, have uh, yeah, yeah you know thank I mean? th- thank you for the call Simon I I really don't think that that's a great way to do things. I mean, we've certainly seen people that have been very successful at business not necessarily do well in in government. I mean, uh, the most glaring example that I can think of is John Corzine, who ran Goldman Sachs, did not do it all well, I think, as senator or governor of New Jersey. Uh, Willard Mitt Romney, was ran Bain Capital. I would, in my opinion, I think he made a lot of mistakes as governor of Massachusetts, and I think his career as a U.S. senator has been entirely indistinguished, or at least I would think so. And yet, he's got a lot of private sector success that he can point to. So I, I don't think there's a direct uh, Herbert Hoover. A lot of people would say he was a big failure as president. However, he was wildly successful as in the private sector running businesses. So I don't think you can always say that. Uh, and um, you know, so but who knows? Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Mike in Manhattan. Did anybody ever tell you? Do you know who I am? Well, is that? This is 20 years ago. I was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art when they had the special Van Gogh exhibit. I was with my first wife at the time. We decided to go. But we went late in the evening, figuring that it was, like, easier getting because the lines were, like, four hours long. So we get there, and it's, like, 5 o'clock, and the museum closed, let's say, 6. I forget exactly what it was. But I, I go, well, you know, where, where are our line? Where, where's the Van Gogh exhibit? I went to the person at the front, and she goes, I'm sorry, but we closed the Van Gogh uh, exhibit before we closed the um, the uh, museum, I'm like I'm really like sputtering at this time, and and uh, my wife is saying, oh don't, don't make a scene, don't make a scene, and then this African American middle aged man walks up to the garden. He's got two teenage daughters with him, and I knew who he was right off the bat. It's Billy D. Williams, oh. right? And and he goes to the to the you know the museum guard. He just turned us away. He goes, now I'm only going to tell you this once, and uh, at the time he was doing Lando Calrissian, but he was also doing the commercials for. Colt 45. Sure, very time. famous guy. One of the most famous actors in America. Yeah, but at that time, he was also doing this Colt 45 sure. uh, commercial. So I'm like, I'm getting really angry, but I'm, I'm seeing that they're obviously going to let him in, you know, kind of thing. And I go, you know what I need right now, dear? You know what I need right now? I scream, I need a Colt 45 malt liquor. And, and he turns around really quick and he goes, I don't even drink that swill, but he didn't say swill. <laughs> okay. And he's laughing and we're laughing and, and you know, everybody's laughing, but the, the, they still kept us out, and they still let Billy D. Williams in and his daughters in. But oh, so so a, Billy D. Williams said the words, "Do you know who I am?" And it worked for him. He got in. Not exactly what he says. I'm only going to tell you this once. He was about to say, "Don't you, do you know who I am?" Before that, I yelled out, "You know, uh, Cold Forty Five. I, I see. So, so he didn't even have to use the words. It did work. It did work. Well, that's that's what I'm amazed at. Uh, one, he I don't know how they didn't. And his two daughters, and they still kept. 
myself and my wife out. They now, let me ask work. you this. I know you said it was your, your first wife. Is the reason yeah. that it was your first wife because she ran off with Billy D. Williams, who's notoriously handsome? Uh, he's the, uh, was the Black Clark Gable. Right. Well, is that why, I'm, is that how I'm you the, lost your first Billy wife? Billy D. Williams. I used to tell people I'm the white Billy D. Williams. So if that wasn't the case, I'm much more attractive than he is. <laughs> well, congratulations on that. That's something I certainly can't say. Uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk Bigfoot with Ken Gerhard, who is a widely recognized, world-renowned cryptozoologist. We're going to talk to him in just a minute. Frequently cited uh, by everybody. He's been on every TV show with respect to the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, and everything else. So we're going to talk with him in just a minute. Paul is in Staten Island. Paul, anybody ever tell you the words, do you know who I am? Uh, yeah, and I knew who this person was. It was some years ago. I was in a bar in Brooklyn with a friend of mine. The guy bumped into my friend and was nice about it, said, excuse me, I'm sorry. My friend who was wet, wet behind the ears at the time got like a a-hole with him, and and that happened. It came out, that phrase, but he said it like, oh, you must not know who I am. And I'm elbowing him, trying to tell him, listen, this is the main guy. I, you, I know who this is. I'm trying to tell him, and... He didn't listen to me. He didn't listen to me. Carry on and on and on. And about a week later, he wound up finding out who he was. And <laughs> then did was there any was there any what sort of retribution did your friend have to contend with uh, later on? <laughs> he had to contend with two guys knocking on his door. <laughs> did he? Did they? Yeah. Did they? Uh, you know, go to work on him? Yeah. Yeah, I got the. He actually called me the day after it happened. He's like, I should have listened to you. So, I'm like next time you should. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah. You ever tell me that the whole time? I know who this guy is. Yeah. You ever tell me that, Paul? <laughs> I'm listening to you. Um, but that goes hand in hand with the example that I gave earlier, which is it is gangsters that love to say that. Do you know who I am? They right. Love, they love to say it, and and you got to take that. And a lot of times, you got to eat those words and swallow them. Yeah. Well, clearly, your that. friend, uh, he may have a few less teeth to eat those words with. Am I right? <laughs> Come on, hundred percent. Thank you, Paul. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Corey is in Brooklyn. Corey, when have you heard those words? Do you know who I am? I've heard them uh, working as security for uh, nightclubs and bars. Um, particularly one up high scale one where they had like a VIP room and uh I got a cushy job just watching that room um and the manager said listen if you don't know this person he they don't work here you call me so these people would come up you know who knows what kind of car they rolled up and they think they're hot shots and they'd say we're going in. I'm like, uh, all right, I got to talk to my manager. So I call him up. Most of the time he'd be like, all right, go ahead. Sometimes he'd be like, let me, I don't know this person. I'll be, I'll be right over there. And sometimes he'd be like, yeah, I know that guy. I don't like that guy. He did. Don't let him in. Those were the difficult times. Well, give me an example of one of the people that tried to play that card. Not not somebody famous uh, that I knew. Um, if I knew who you were, then... Right, then you know, obviously would they wouldn't need to you. say the words. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But uh, I would be the one stuck there saying, uh, listen, I always say, listen, I have to talk to the manager. Those are, That's my job. Normally it would be like, oh, it's uh, Mike so-and-so? Go ahead. Fine. Sometimes it would be like, 
oh yeah, this guy's a thinks he's a big shot. Uh, I don't want to deal with him. Don't let him through. Yeah, no, I can and imagine. I'd be there and I'd be like, uh, yeah, I can't get through to him. Oh, he just uh, said it's awful. Uh, we're closed up. Yeah, no, well, and, and, and thanks, guy, Corey. Look, there is a responsible way to do this, and there's the Elliot Spitzer way to do it. The Elliot Spitzer way is, hey, uh, do you know who I am? Uh, do I have to talk to Bill about this? Come on. I have been in a position where there's a long line at a bar or a lounge or something, and I happen to know the owner. And you know what I've done in those instances when I haven't wanted to wait in line? And this is many years ago when I was not working in line. I wouldn't say, do you know who I am? What I would say is, hi, I'm Frank. I'm a friend of Kyle. Hi, I'm Frank. I'm a friend of Tim. And either, like, they, if, if they doubted me, they would call Kyle or Tim or whomever and Kyle or Tim would say, you know, okay, yeah, 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 let him in. But you would never say, do you know who I am? Last one. We're going to do one more of these. And then I want to talk Bigfoot with Ken Gerhardt. Ed is in New Jersey. Ed, when have you heard those words, do you know who I am? I've heard it hundreds, hundreds of times. We live in a lot of things. Is that how you were able to persuade uh, Ryan to let you on with such a poor phone connection? No. <laughs> but the worst I ever heard or the best, I guess. I heard a guy say it to a judge one day. I had to go to court on a um, traffic ticket. And who was the guy that said it? I don't know. But he says to the judge, do you know who I am? And the judge says, not really. He goes, but did you, you know, did you uh, tell the officer this when you were stopped? He says, yeah, but he didn't seem to care. He said, do you know who I am? So the judge says, tell me. He said, I'm a personal friend of the mayor. At that point, the judge doubled the fine. He's going to double the fine to the mayor. <laughs> that is my kind of judge, Ed. Thank you. Ken Gerhard uh, joins me next. We're going to talk Bigfoot and a whole bunch of other things. If you have questions about Bigfoot, you can call in. We'll try and get to them. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky journey will take us on a ride filled with the longing searching for the truth will we make it to tomorrow will the sun shine on you midnight in the desert This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, look, it seems like everywhere you turn these days, there's some news about Bigfoot. In uh, there, there was an alleged Bigfoot sighting in Illinois that is getting a lot of people talking and only adding to this legendary creature's fame. There's now a great American Bigfoot 
tour, there is one state that is actually offering a reward in Oklahoma specifically. They're offering a reward if you catch a Bigfoot. Interest in Bigfoot is surging, but there's a lot of people that don't believe that uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch is even real. If Bigfoot is real, why have we never caught one? Why have we never seen a Bigfoot carcass. Why do so many people believe Bigfoot exists? Why do so many people remain skeptical of Bigfoot's existence? Is it one creature? Is it a thousand? Where are they? Are they all over the world? Are they in North America? Are they in your backyard? Well, uh, we decided uh, to get some of the answers to those questions to one of the go-to Bigfoot Experts. He is a widely recognized cryptozoologist and a field investigator for the Center for Fortean Zoology. He's a fellow of the Pangea Institute. He's been a consultant for, or is a consultant, with several major research organizations. He has traveled the world searching for evidence of all sorts of mysterious animals and legendary beasts, including Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and many others. He's co-hosted the History Channel TV series Missing in Alaska. He's been featured on many, many different television and radio shows over the years. Also happens to be a best-selling author of six books on the subject of unknown animals. It is my great pleasure to welcome Ken Gerhardt. Ken, thanks for staying up late with us. Good evening, Frank. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. The honor is all mine. Now, Ken, what sparked your interest? First of all, what is cryptozoology? When we refer to you as a widely recognized cryptozoologist, what is cryptozoology? What is that field? Yes, well, cryptozoology, uh, the literal translation from Latin means the study of hidden animals. And by hidden animals, we're typically talking about uh species that are not yet recognized by traditional science. And just to clarify, Frank, I don't have a scientific degree. Cryptozoology is not something you can go to a university and get a degree in. It's kind of a fringe science, if you will. So, uh, so yeah, I go out and I, I search for and analyze alleged evidence of unknown animals, things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Jersey Devil, <laughs> so on and so forth. Now, some young people will go through their formative years and say, oh, I want to be a a lawyer or a firefighter or an accountant. And we have some idea of how one gets into those fields. How does what what sparked your initial interest in finding hidden animals like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster? How did you get started? Yeah, well, I certainly never planned on making cryptozoology a career. I've just been very blessed. Um, it's definitely a non-traditional thing to, to do with my life. But um started when I was a kid. Uh, I was about eight or nine years old. I was very interested in animals already. I had a lot of exotic pets growing up. My father was a forestry professor, spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I also loved monster movies, you know. I was raised on Godzilla movies and Creature from the Black Lagoon and all that. So when I saw a TV show about Bigfoot when I was about eight or nine years old, it was like a light bulb went off, you know. I mean, here was this thing that was like, uh, it was a monster, but it was also seemed like it was maybe an undiscovered animal or something. So that kind of started my interest. And then, uh, you know, growing up, my mother uh, was a travel agent. She took me all over the world. I got to camp along the Amazon River and hike Australian deserts and, you know, all kinds of amazing things. And I was always in search for whatever legendary 
creatures or beasts might be from that, that area. And then age 15, I was at Loch Ness attempting field research at a young age. So it's just been something I've pursued my whole life. I guess I didn't plan on making a career out of it, but it's just kind of become my life's passion. You, you mentioned watching monster movies and films like Godzilla. Obviously, those are works of, of fiction. A lot of people believe that Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, that those aren't real, that mm-hmm. the, this is the work of uh, charlatans or those of us with a, an overactive imagination. Um, do you believe that – are you convinced that Bigfoot is real or you, do you believe that he is fake or are you uh, maybe undecided about the, the real reality of Bigfoot or not? Yeah, well, uh, based on recent surveys, uh, about 78 to 82 percent of the population think that Bigfoot could not exist, period. So the vast majority of people, even though everybody loves Bigfoot, obviously, Frank, he's a very popular figure in, in, in pop culture. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in the minority, like, you know, one in five people that think, OK, maybe this thing could be real. So what I tell people is I'm 90 percent convinced they exist. I've never seen one with my own eyes. Um, I think I may have heard them vocalize and have recorded those sounds. Um, you know, I've spent decades searching all over North America, from Alaska to Florida, Central America, the Pacific Northwest. I've worked with most of the leading uh, investigators in the field, and I've interviewed hundreds of credible people that swear they've seen this thing. And so based on all of that experience and a lot of the other evidence that we have in terms of the castings of footprints and so forth, the Patterson-Gimlin film from 1967, all of that to me is, is very convincing. But, you know, I try to approach cryptozoology as scientifically as possible. And so through the prism of zoology, it seems highly improbable that these things could actually exist. But, you know, it's equally improbable that they don't exist based on my experience. So it's, it's quite a paradox. Uh, by the way, we're talking with Ken Gerhard. He's written several books on this subject, uh, A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts, Encounters with Flying Humanoids, Big Bird. You could check them all out at his website, KenGerhard.com, G-E-R-H-A-R-D. Now, you you allude to the fact that you've never seen a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch with your own eyes, uh, but you point to some evidence, including a footprint and some film that, um, you know, that leads you to think that Bigfoot is real. What um, what do you think Bigfoot is? If it is, in fact, something that's real, what is it? Yeah, well, one of the compelling things, Frank, is that the eyewitness accounts, which number in the thousands, are pretty consistent. And uh, people describe the, the average Bigfoot stands about seven and a half feet tall, weighs several hundred pounds. It walks on two legs. It's very manlike, except it's very powerfully built with broad shoulders. And, it, uh, you know, it's covered in hair. And um, what's interesting is that, you know, this archetype fits perfectly within the paradigm of what we know about human evolution. In other words, this thing looks like what we call a hominin, which is basically one of our pre-human ancestors from millions or tens of thousands of years ago. So it's, you know, it could very easily be a surviving example of some ancient pre-human. It's a, a great ape, basically, uh, but one that walks on its hind legs and uh, one that has uh, possibly has behavioral adaptations 
that make it very hard to find. And I also think it's very rare, Frank. I don't think there's a ton of these things out there. Well, that was my next question, is do you have a theory of approximately how many of these are out there in, say, North America? It's all pure speculation, but there have been academics, physical anthropologists and other scientists, wildlife biologists that have become interested in Bigfoot through the years. And, you know, based on all of that, the best guess is that there would have to be at least in the low thousands spread across the continent. So you have the vast majority of sightings are in the Pacific Northwest, but you do have sightings all over North America for the most part, mostly in wilderness areas. But if there were any less than, say, 1,500, you know, they, they would obviously they wouldn't have enough, there wouldn't be enough to have a viable breeding population to sustain, you know, over a long period of time. But there could be as many as 4,000 in North America wow. based on some projections. So... Um, I doubt there are more than that, or we would have more evidence that they exist at this point. Well, if there, if Bigfoot is real, and if there are, say, thousands of them, why do you think we haven't seen better evidence, uh, something like a Bigfoot carcass or a smoking gun clear as day video or photograph? Yeah, that's a great question, and I definitely understand why people are skeptical, and I always encourage critical thinking, so I like it when people challenge and question these things. Um, that's a great point. Why don't we have physical remains? Um, you know, the only answer that I have to that is that, A, these animals seem to be very, you know, rare, as I said. Uh, there are probably like 160 bears for every Bigfoot or Sasquatch in North America, Two, I think that they've adapted avoidance behaviors to, to not be found by humans. In other words, they recognize, they're smart enough to recognize that we are their greatest threat, and therefore they have adapted behavior patterns like living in remote areas we typically don't go in. They seem to be nocturnal. They seem to be largely nomadic and just very skilled at hiding from us. Um, and then the last thing to keep in mind is that, you know, a lot of animals, when they die, uh, they don't necessarily die out in the open. If an animal knows it's going to die, it will typically crawl under, uh, you know, looking at bears and mountain lions. A lot of animals will crawl into heavy brush or hide themselves when they're sick and they die. And that may be why we haven't found any remains. But still, you would think as big as they are, as many as there have been living on this continent, there would have to be bones and teeth Somewhere, and you know, the photographic evidence is a real head scratcher too, because there's so many cameras out there these days. Uh, you know, uh, people even have these trail cameras, you know, mounted on trees. You know, 24-hour surveillance. So uh, it is surprising. Uh, you know, I don't have a great answer for you other than they're rare, they're elusive, and you know, we just haven't been in the right place at the right time yet. Could you ever be convinced? <clears throat> excuse me. Could you ever be convinced that they're not out there? That there is no such thing as Bigfoot or Sasquatch? Or Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I like I said, I'm 90% convinced. You know, science science is supposed to be an agnostic process. Nothing is 100% typically in science except for like math and gravity and stuff like that. But you know, otherwise theories are overturned. Uh, you know, someone could convince me eventually, but you know, um, and and, I, and I, I would accept definitive evidence that they don't exist. But, you know, here's the thing, Frank. I've looked in the eyes of so many people through the years, seemingly credible people that don't seem like they, you know, they seem totally sane. They don't seem like they'd have any reason or motivation to make these stories up. And they swear to me they've seen these things. And, you know, 
And, and oftentimes these are people that live out in the woods, hunters, ranchers, farmers, people that see all kinds of animals, bears and other things. So, um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm certainly open to the possibility that this is some really bizarre cultural phenomenon and, you know, that the, if people are seeing things or, you know, who knows. Um, if you had to pick, you mentioned a lot of pop cultural depictions of Bigfoot over the years. What would you say is the finest fictional portrayal of uh, of Bigfoot in any television, movie, etc.? Oh gosh, are we, you know are we going on uh, physical accuracy or just like entertainment no, value? No, just for entertainment and... value, pure pure entertainment value. Oh man, okay. So there's a cult movie from 1972 called The Legend of Boggy Creek. Mm. And uh, most Bigfoot researchers my age that grew up in the 70s and 80s saw this when we were kids, and it scared the crap out of us. It was this, uh, uh, this based on this real creature called the Falk Monster down in Falk, Arkansas, that uh, people had been seeing down there for years in this real area uh, on Boggy Creek. And the thing about the film is it was shot very low budget, and it was shot in kind of a documentary style in the early 70s. And it's very eerie, very scary Based on true events, most of the people in the movie are actual residents of this town and stuff. And it just has this vibe about it. Uh, but the other cool thing is that it, basically what it did in the early 70s is it shifted Bigfoot from being a Pacific Northwest, West Coast phenomenon to suddenly, you know, being in the eastern United States. And uh, so that kind of brought out a lot of, you know, eyewitnesses and, and reports around that time in, in you know, eastern parts of the United States. In fact, you guys have sightings up there in Staten Island. I don't know if you I, actually. With- I did not know that. I know New York State was known for uh, has had its fair share of Bigfoot sightings, but I thought most of them were in places like the Hudson Valley. Yeah, up, up near Whitehall, uh, there have been a lot of sightings. But uh, there's something called Trash Squatch, which has been reported on uh, Old Richmond Town there, uh, mostly back in the 1970s. So, wow. uh, yeah, I did so, not know yeah. that. I'll have to do a field trip of my own uh, to see if I could find something. It is interesting. We're talking with Ken Gerhard. You can check out the uh, website, KenGerhard.com. His books are on there, some other interesting work. Give me the name of that film again. That does sound interesting, and I've never seen it. It's called The Legend of Boggy Creek. That is... And it was... was it was just re-released, uh, you know, re- digitally remastered, and it's one of the most successful independent movies ever made, Frank. I think they spent like $100,000 filming it, and it's grossed, you know, millions and millions cool. through the years. So, wow, yeah. uh, that is, uh, that's pretty impressive. Hey, uh, while I have you, let me get your take on the Loch Ness Monster as well. You mentioned visiting, having visited uh, Loch Ness in Scotland. What's your take on uh, what the situation is with the Loch Ness Monster? Yeah, well, I, uh, my newest book is The Essential Guide to the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, basically, um, I connect the Loch Ness Monster to other lake monsters have been reported around the world. So the first thing I have to point out is, you know, when you talk about the Loch Ness Monster, you kind of have to zoom out a little bit and consider that there are been similar lake monsters. For example, uh, upstate New York there, you have the Lake Champlain Monster or Champ, Champy. Yeah. Uh, uh, you got Canada has Ogopogo. You have lake monsters from Scotland, Scandinavia. Russia, you know, and the, the descriptions, just like Bigfoot, the descriptions are all very similar. These gigantic aquatic animals, serpentine body shape, they kind of swim with an up and down undulation. Um, so, you know, my best 
theory that I talk about in the book. I know a lot of people like to, to consider the Loch Ness Monster as being some kind of surviving dinosaur called a plesiosaur, an aquatic marine reptile, but I think it's a mammal. Uh, I think based on the mm. cold water that it's reported in, the up and down movements, which is a mammalian uh, a form of locomotion, um, and people describe the skin as very smooth and whale-like. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suggest a prehistoric type of whale called an archaeocete that was around about 30 or 40 million years ago. And they were very unlike modern whales. They were very huge, but they were long and serpentine. Uh, so I think that would be a much more likely candidate based on the eyewitness descriptions. And the other thing I think people need to know about the Loch Ness Monster is, you know, most people consider it like a long time ago sort of thing, you know, like, oh, that was back in the 30s, the 70s or whatever. But what a lot of people don't realize is there are still about 10 good sightings every year. So uh, Nessie is still being seen on a regular basis there. Uh, but we don't have conclusive photographic evidence yet, just some controversial films and photographs and a lot of sonar contacts with big things swimming around under the water there. Have you ever have you ever seen the Loch Ness Monster? No, I haven't. Do you no. do you have a theory as to whether that in Loch Ness itself is one creature or multiple creatures? Well, again, looking through the prism of zoology, you would have to have multiple creatures. Sure. Um, you know, it's a pretty big lake. I mean, it's it's narrow. It's uh, about twenty three and a half miles long, about one and a half miles wide, but it's incredibly deep, Frank. It's about uh, seven hundred and fifty four feet is the the greatest accepted depth, it could go down to eight, 900 feet. That's a lot of water. That's like 263, sure. you know, billion cubic feet of water or something. So it's, it, and it, the water's very dark, very, uh, you know, silty. Uh, so, yeah, they, there would have to be at least a few of them. And there's also a possibility that they could be moving in and out of the ocean uh, because Loch Ness is connected to the ocean by some shallow rivers and so forth. Interesting. Hey, uh, Ken, it was great talking with you. I hope you'll come back soon. Uh, I love the work you're doing, and uh, it's really, it's really, I'm glad you're out there, and I hope you'll come back soon. Well, thank you for having me on, Frank. Anytime, buddy. I appreciate uh, it I appreciate very it. much. And thanks for the education about uh, the Bigfoot sighting in my backyard uh, years ago. Yeah, go ch go check that out for me, and you can you can be my guy on the, yeah, <laughs> on if, my boots if, on the ground there. Yeah, <laughs> if, if you ever make a trip out east, we'll go visit it together, but I'll be looking in the meantime. That sounds good. All right. Okay. Ken, Ken Gerhardt, uh, you want to comment, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. What a day for a daydream. What a day for a daydream, indeed. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, tomorrow, in addition to Roger Stone being here uh, to give us the latest on uh, his battle with the January 6th committee, uh, we are also going to read your best and worst 
pieces of mail. If you want to send me some mail, be it fan mail or complaint mail or something in between, or if you have a question about something, you can send good old-fashioned snail mail to my attention, Frank Moreno, P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. That's P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, 10163. You can also email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And we'll read them tomorrow right around this time. Meantime. If you want to make some interesting – if you want to make some sound choices for your own financial health, you need to think about buying and investing in gold. Gold, silver, and other precious metals are hedges against inflation. We've seen what has been happening with inflation. Inflation is at its highest levels in 40 years, and legacy precious metals will act as a hedge against inflation. The less the dollar is worth, the more gold is worth. The less the dollar is worth, the more silver is worth. Legacy precious metals are the inflation-fighting specialists, if you have an existing retirement account, you can think about rolling it into a gold or a silver IRA. And if you do it, do it with Legacy Precious Metals. Call them at 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. If you don't have any sort of a retirement account, they can help you out with some other strategies in terms of how to invest in gold. 866 932 0635. You can also visit online to LegacyPMInvestments.com. Now, if you go to that website, LegacyPMInvestments.com, you'll also find uh, that you can request some more information for free. I've done it, and even if you don't end up investing, a lot of this information is very helpful. You can uh, They're going to ask you where you heard about it. Tell me you heard about it from me, Frank Morano, LegacyPMInvestments.com. You want to email me, do so, Frank.Morano at WABC. Radio.com. We have denunciations coming up in just about five minutes right after the news. Uh, excuse me, commendations, not denunciations. I forgot what day it is. Commendations coming up in mere moments and a whole lunch, a lot of other things uh, that we're going to get to. We're going to go, we're going to attempt to go live to Ukraine in about a half hour to talk with an American who's living in eastern Ukraine. We'll ask him if he's evacuating. The order has gone out. If you're American, Get out of Dodge. Get out of Ukraine. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i am frank morano if you ever want to know about the great music that uh, we collectively select on this program sometimes it's a matt blaze contribution sometimes it's a molly contribution is it ever a ryan contribution it has yet to be a ryan contribution okay 
So thankfully, it's never a Ryan contribution. Sometimes it's a, a Frank Morano selection. If you ever want to know about the songs that we post uh, or that we play, you can join our Facebook uh, group of listeners at uh, just, you know, go online on Facebook and uh, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. You can also just go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. A lot of interesting discussions go on there. Um, uh, people just talking about vaccines, people commenting on the roundtable discussion that we had in the first hour, people commenting on comments that I made last week uh, regarding Theodore Roosevelt, um, a couple of people commenting on these horrible police shootings, Meets a couple of people, a lot of people commenting on a, a lot of Curtis comments over the weekend, he spent pretty much his entire show talking about me, which is just fine because when Curtis discusses subjects other than me, it can be a little a little tedious. So that's that. Um, by the way, I do want to remind. So you know, one of the discussions that's on there now. One of the discussions that's on there now is people saying that they want a cap. They want a, the other side of midnight baseball cap on this show, either from losing the $1,000 minute or stumping me in some other thing. And they're complaining that they didn't get it. Guys, if you didn't get a cap and you complain about it in the Facebook group, there's literally nothing that I can do for you. The best thing, the way that I can help you is if you email me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. We did have a bunch of uh, staff changes here over the course of the last six, seven months in terms of who was in charge of promotions and this and that. So uh, some people might have gotten lost in the shuffle. It sounds like that's what happened. Uh, And, you know, we had uh, changes, you know, Matt Sapienza, uh, Christian Arnold, uh, Gabby Lopez, and uh, now we have Matt Blaze and uh, and Molly. So you really, the best way to get a cap if you're legitimately owed one is to email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Email me with approximately when you won, how you won it, and I will get it over to our current head of promotions, Jake the Snake Roberts, who does a great job. He's not the wrestler, but I guess it's his cousin or something. And uh, he does a great job in terms of getting these caps out. And people are getting them. So if you have an issue with something that you want on the show and didn't get it, the way to get it is to email me, not to post in the Facebook group. Because if you post in the Facebook group, all I'm going to say is, oh, just e- email me and I'll try and get you your cap. So why why add that step? Just email me directly. Um, so you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, By the way, if you go to my Facebook page, uh, not the group, but the page at Facebook.com slash Morano fan, you will see the Rayo's drawing that we did yesterday. And uh, that is something that uh, was very exciting. And it also happens to be the subject of one of this week's. Commendations. The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. It's been a whole week. I know. Uh, I know, Matt. It's, uh, it is difficult. The follow- I want to commend everybody that participated in the Rayo's drawing. Thanks to you, I am not $2,000 poorer. And, uh, I, and thanks to you, some lucky person 
will be able to dine at Rayo's. I'll tell you more about that, hopefully, towards the end of this hour. Additionally, I must give a commendation to Boise, oh, uh, excuse me, Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho is the hottest city in the nation right now when it comes to explosive job growth in new job listings. Now, this may come as a surprise. When you think of of red-hot, white-hot job markets, you don't necessarily think of Idaho. But a new report from the job site Indeed.com found employment postings for the Boise metropolitan area were nearly double the volume of February of 2020. So this is leading the list of fastest-growing areas for job growth. Spokane, there's a lot of people hiring. Las Vegas, there's a lot of people hiring. Phoenix, Austin, those are all part of the top ten. But nobody is hiring as much as Boise is. So if you're looking for a job, go west, young man. Head on over to Boise, Idaho. I must also give a commendation to somebody that I always thought was a little bit of a zero, I have to tell you. I know she's very successful, so um, you can't really argue with, you know, success. But I always thought she was a little crass. I never really cared for her music, and uh, I thought she was unnecessarily vulgar. And I'm talking about Cardi B, but I have to give her a very sincere commendation because Cardi B is from the Bronx, And she did something last week that I thought was aces. I thought this was really commendable, hence the commendation, and and really wonderful, uh, sincerely. She is planning to pay the funeral costs for everybody that died in that deadly fire in the Bronx. In total, 17 people died after a fire ripped through this Bronx apartment building. And... um, she said in a statement, I'm extremely proud to be from the Bronx, and I have lots of family and friends who live and uh, work there still. So when I heard about the fire and all the victims, I knew I needed to do something to help. I cannot begin to imagine the pain and anguish that the families of the victims are experiencing, but I hope that not having to worry about the costs associated with burying their loved ones will help as they move forward and heal. Um, and then she added, I send my prayers and condolences to everyone affected by this horrific tragedy. This is wonderful. Uh, this is wonderful. This is somebody who clearly has not forgotten where she's come uh, come from, and she's using the substantial fortune that she's earned as an entertainer to help some people that are having a very, very tough time right now, to put it mildly. I have to commend the New York State Liquor Authority. Thanks to these guys. Moviegoers here in New York can now grab beer or wine with their popcorn. That's right. All these dine-in movie theaters, and there are now more than ever, you can now have a drink in the movie theater while you watch the movie. Cinemas can now serve beer and wine at concession stands. Moviegoers are allowed to take their drinks into the theater for the show. Previously, theaters could only sell the drinks if they had a a restaurant license with a full kitchen and wait staff to bring the alcohol to the customer in their seats or a tavern license that that limited drinking to a table, often in the lobby. Right now, um, the situation is you have to consume these drinks very quickly in the lobby. I've been in this position where you have to uh, just 
down your drink super quick so that you can get in to see the movie. Now you can bring a beer, bring a glass of wine right into the movie theater with you, or have the waiter bring it to you. I think this is a great thing. And all of a sudden, I am really looking forward to going to the movies. So thank you, New York State Liquor Authority. I do commend you. Uh, I want to commend Tori Yorgi of WSAZ-TV in Charleston, West Virginia. This is an interesting, interesting um, person. You might have seen the video that has circulated online of Tori Yorgi. She was reporting on a water main break in Dunbar, West Virginia, during the 11 p.m. broadcast Wednesday night when she was struck by a white SUV and knocked down. The camera fell to the ground, and from outside the shot, Yorgi, only 25 years old, could be heard saying, I just got hit by a car, but I'm okay. She got up, adjusted the camera, and kept reporting. Now, this is a real journalist. This is a real tough hombre or hombres. I'm not sure what the female of hombre is. Umbra, whatever. But uh, this is someone that is clearly to be reckoned with and someone that has a bright future, in my judgment, in broadcast journalism. I'm sorry she got hit by the car, but I think this uh, shows her toughness and uh, good for her. I want to give a, unfortunately, a posthumous commendation to police officer Jason Rivera. This is incredibly sad. The only thing that makes it sadder is the fact that this is um, yet another police officer that has been killed this year. I'll tell you, you read the story. First of all, you read the story of what happened with Jason Rivera and... The fact that he died at only 22 years old is heartbreaking. But when you read about how Jason Rivera, um, a 22-year-old, essentially they call him an NYPD rookie, was shot down as he responded to a domestic disturbance in Harlem. He didn't go and ask if the person that he was helping was black or white. He was just responding to someone that needed help. And that's why, as soon as I saw this story and that the person that killed him was black, he happened to be Hispanic, the victim that he was trying to help was black, I'm reminded last June of a protest that I got caught in traffic of, and you had all these protesters on bikes shouting to mostly minority members of the NYPD saying, How do you spell racist NYPD? And I just think to myself, what planet are these people on where they can call with impunity the members of the NYPD racist? And yet this person gave his life protecting a woman who was black. But you read the um, what he wrote to the commanding officer of the police academy, this letter that he wrote. When I applied to become a police officer, I knew this was the career for me. I would be the first person in my family to become a police officer. Coming from an immigrant family, I will be the first to say that I'm a member of the NYPD, the greatest police force in the world. Growing up in New York City, I realized how impactful my role as a police officer would go 
in this chaotic city of about 10 million people. I know that something as small as helping a tourist with directions or helping a couple resolve an issue will put a smile on someone's face. Growing up in Inwood, Manhattan, the community's relationship between the police and the community was not great. I remember one day when I witnessed my brother being stopped and frisked, I asked myself, why are we being pulled over if we are in a taxi? I was too young to know that during that time, the NYPD was pulling over and frisking people at a high rate. My perspective on police and the way they police really bothered me. As time went on, I saw the NYPD pushing hard on changing the relationship between police and the community. This was when I realized that I wanted to be a part of the men in blue, building a better, better the relationship between police and community. This is exactly the kind of police officer we need more of. And now he's dead at 22 years old. I mean, this is just incredibly sickening. Uh, and his, his partner, Officer Wilbert Mora, was also shot. He's being listed in uh, critical condition. He is in the hospital still. Uh, we're wishing him a speedy recovery. And uh, I hate these posthumous commendations because it always means that someone wonderful has, has died. But uh, this is particularly difficult to take and particularly tough to talk about, quite frankly. Uh, I want to give a commendation to two students from my alma mater, Tottenville High School on Staten Island, were, uh, Sabrina Treston and Sofia Toropova. Students at Tottenville were the winners of the 2021 Congressional App Challenge for New York's 11th Congressional District, as awarded by my congresswoman, Nicole Maliotakis. They created something or developed something called the Advocating for Animals app. Now, I'm commending them not only their, for their skill as app developers, but because I happen to be a big animal rights person myself. This is a game that teaches users the effects of humans' actions on the environment, and it's intended to bring awareness to animals and their habitats. The app specifically focuses on the impact deforestation has on animals in the wilderness and how ocean pollution impacts marine life. So uh, this is great, and I absolutely love that uh, it went to two students from my old high school. I'll tell you, uh, I don't know what you were doing in high school, but I wasn't designing any apps, that's for sure. I want to give a commendation to the Minnesota Department of Transportation. They are doing something which I just love. For the next three days, Minnesota DOT is allowing people to vote on the name of their new snowplow. This is wonderful, and this is something I'd love to see the uh, people in our area uh, emulate. They're doing something called the Name a Snowplow Contest. And among the finalists, they had more than 11,000 suggestions. Among the finalists are, listen to this, Betty Whiteout. Control, salt, delete. Mr. Plow. Those of you that are Simpsons fans will get that. Or And catch my drift. These are great. And um, they're going to vote through Wednesday. So if you're one of our listeners in Minnesota, you can head on over to DOT's website uh, in Minnesota and vote. 
But uh, I think that's great. I think it's clever. I think it's wonderful. It gets people going to the website, learning more about what DOT does. I think it's phenomenal. I want to give a commendation as well to Donald Husenga, a 98-year-old World War II veteran from Texas who has received his high school diploma. He was drafted into the Army about six weeks before graduation and just a few weeks before he could graduate from high school. In 1943, he was drafted to fight in World War II. And now, 79 years later, he was finally able to get his high school diploma. Um, This is absolutely terrific. And um, he had regretted for years not getting his high school diploma. And uh, they got wind of this at this old high school, and they decided to give it to him. During his service in World War II, he parachuted out of a plane, became a prisoner of war, and spent eight months in a German POW camp. And I know personally, usually this particular high school likes to give diplomas to people that weren't captured, but I'm glad they made an exception for Donald Husenga. He served in the Army from 1943 through 1945 and went back to civilian life but never got his diploma. And uh, after the, he told somebody about it, Miss, Miss Gooding, she met with the people at um, this high school, uh, East Sac County High School, and which had replaced the school that Husenga attended in the 1940s. And Gooding asked if the school would be able to help this gentleman get his diploma. And the principal agreed to help. And this is just wonderful. And uh, I couldn't be happier about the story. I also couldn't be happier about the next recipient of, of our commendation, Ellen Metzger. Now, you, those of you that are in the Facebook group all, all know Ellen Metzger. She is our most prolific and most on-topic Facebook poster in the Facebook group. And you can see for yourself at Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, And you can certainly, you know, you can certainly uh, join the Facebook group. By the way, in the Facebook group, Daniel Purden just writes, just emailed Frank for the sixth time about the silly hat I never received. Daniel, I didn't get any email. So I think you're sending it to the wrong email address. Let me tell you, email my personal email, which I know works, wisdom.morano at gmail.com. That's my personal email. Email me there. I have not gotten any emails from you, Daniel. So uh, rather than rant about it in the Facebook group, email me, and we'll try and get you a hat. If I have to buy you a hat, I will. By the way, we have some other great hats at wabcradiostore.com. But getting back to Ellen Metzger, I was going on the radio on and on on Friday about how I had broken the James Garfield mug that Margot Katsimatidis has given me. Wouldn't you know it, Ellen goes to the trouble of buying me not only two new James Garfield mugs, but a couple of Theodore Roosevelt mugs as well, which is very, very nice. They haven't arrived yet, but I'm looking forward to using them very much. And finally... I have to give a commendation to Kenneth Cole, not the fashion designer, but the radio listener that lives on my block. I was walking when my wife and I were going for a walk when we first moved into this neighborhood. And I was walking and he shouts down, hey, Frank. And he recognized me, I guess, from uh, whatever. And he said, oh, I make bread. 
And so when we first moved in, he made us some terrific bread, some whole wheat, and I think some sourdough. And then yesterday, he comes by and drops off a, oh, we haven't tried it yet, but a great loaf of homemade cinnamon raisin bread. There's no preservatives in this. Uh, nothing. It's, it's all the best ingredients. I'm looking forward to trying it. And it looks looks great and smells great. I'm really looking forward to trying it. Big commendation to Kenneth Cole for dropping off uh, homemade bread. It is a little disconcerting that so many listeners happen to know exactly where I live. But as long as they're dropping off bread instead of bombs, I think we're okay. Speaking of bombs, we are going to go live to Ukraine in just a minute to talk with Russell Bentley. This is a gentleman from Texas who is now living in Ukraine where he is fighting alongside the Ukrainian separatists. We'll get his take on these new escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine. The American State Department's issuing a travel warning. They're evacuating Americans out of there. We'll talk to him next. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I found my field on Blueberry Hill. On Blueberry Hill. When I found you. Everybody, this is Frank Morano. Well, uh, that, that's a recorded Frank Morano. So, Matt, explain. So, uh, repeatedly, when we've done segments on Russia or Ukraine, I've asked you for to play uh, either Vladimir Putin or Mikhail yes. Gorbachev Correct. singing, only to repeatedly be disappointed. Even when I've sent you the links, <laughs> even when you've responded in email, "Got it" or "Thanks," <laughs> and we've never gotten to play it. And then you volunteered. I didn't that, ask because I, I gave up asking. I gave up asking. That is you true. You volunteered. Um, hey, we've got uh, Vladimir Putin and Mikhail Gorbachev singing. If you want it, I said, yeah. "Well, my goodness, this must be my lucky day." Yeah. I said, "All right, we're going to talk about Putin. Let's hear Putin." And then you play uh, the song followed by. By me. What, what is that that well, you're playing here? What, what, well, what transpired? As I looked in the archives yes. and I saw that the Putin and Gorbachev music was in the system. Right. And it says it's two minutes and change. Right. So I figured I didn't put it in there. It was in there before. Interesting. So when I went to it, as we just heard, I did not know that it was a recorded version that somebody had put in there and not faded it down so, to cut you off at the end. That was so from a segment that uh, I guess I did on Russia previously. Correct. Right. I would I would assume so. All right. Well, we may ship you off to Ukraine if this kind of behavior <laughs> continues. And the, one of the people that you can meet there is a fascinating, fascinating person who I've had the privilege of interviewing before. I could do hours just talking to him about his life story because it is uh, pretty interesting, but I want to get his take on some current events. Russell Texas Bentley, an American communist living in eastern Ukraine who is fighting alongside the Ukrainian separatists there. Russell, thank you for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me again, Frank. Good to be talking to you again. Where am I? Uh, where am I speaking to you now, Russell? 
Uh, I'm in the city of Donetsk, which is the capital of the Donetsk People's Republic, uh, formerly part of southeastern Ukraine. Uh, for the last seven years, uh, we've been an independent republic. Uh, we have our own army, our own government, our own cops, you know. So we're we're completely separate from Ukraine now. Now, Russell, I do want to do a, another interview with you where we go in depth in terms of your background. But I just want to give some listeners a little bit of uh, a little bit of brief perspective. Now, you're an American. You're from Texas. Um, how and why did you end up in Ukraine? Well, as you said, I am a communist. Uh, I was born in 1960, so I was growing up in the days of the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, the 60s and 70s, um, I started uh, reading about, well, actually, I lived in Dallas when JFK was killed. So even though I was only three and a half years old, I remember it. And it it had a big effect on me as far as wondering what was really going on behind the scenes. Growing up, uh, looking at the news reports from Vietnam, uh, I started uh, going to the library. I was a voracious reader as a kid. I started reading books by uh, Ho Chi Minh, you know, who was the leader of the uh, Vietnamese resistance to the French and U.S. occupation. You know, what he what he was saying made a lot of sense. You know, they were people that were defending their own homes, their own families, their own country against foreign military invaders. So, you know, I started uh, reading uh, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara from Cuba, and uh, it made a big impact on me. You know, uh, and when I was 21 years old, I joined the U.S. Army, uh, spent a couple of years in Germany, a year at Fort Polk. I'm an honorably discharged veteran. And, uh, you know, I did my time in the U.S. Army and um, then just kept on thinking about it. In 1995, I went to Cuba for a month to see what was the... uh... Sorry about that. That's all right. Uh, To see what was the... uh... The deal over there and, uh, you know, and I understood what was going on that, you know, there are some governments in the world that really do put a uh, priority on the people's welfare instead of, you know, the one percent's welfare. When I saw what was going on in Yugoslavia, when it was destroyed as a country by NATO in the 1990s, I saw what happened in, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq with the fake WMDs. I saw what happened to uh, Libya, which was actually the country in Africa with the highest standard of living, free medical, free housing, free education. In a lot of ways, they had it better than a lot of people in the United States do. And when that country was destroyed and Muammar Gaddafi was murdered, you know, it really made me, you know, angry and ashamed of what my country, the USA, was doing around the world. And so... When it started happening again in Ukraine, when I saw the Maidan was a complete, you know, staged color revolution, you know, backed and directed by the USA, you know, I knew that it wasn't going to be good for the people of Ukraine. And I felt an obligation, you know, as an American to show the people of Ukraine and the people of the world, you know, that not all Americans were okay with invading and destroying other countries only for, uh, you know, political or economic benefits to the USA. So I came here in 2014, got here in December 17th. Uh, December 7th was my first day in Donetsk. Uh, and uh, on New Year's Eve, I was uh, on the front on the combat position called Monastery 
by the Donetsk airport, and I was in uh, some of the heaviest battles of this war. Now, uh, worked, uh, a, a lot. The, with the, the, Go ahead. There's a lot of questions based on everything that you said that I I have. Uh, if people haven't followed the Ukraine situation that closely over the course of the last eight years, which I think is many Americans, because the media coverage on this issue has been atrocious, very lacking and very one sided. If people don't know what Russell's talking about there, the Maidan uh, so-called color revolution, that's when a democratically elected president in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, was toppled in a coup d'etat, essentially, that was supported by the American government and uh, Poroshenko, a much more friendlier to America president, was installed. Um, but question just based on everything that you just said, and we're talking with Russell Texas Bentley. You could check out his website, RussellTexasBentley.com. If you're a communist, and I understand the uh, opposition to the war in Iraq, I understand the opposition to the Libyan situation. If you're a communist and you think so fondly of communism as an ideology and communist countries, why wouldn't you go to a communist country like Cuba, like Vietnam, like China? Why instead go to a country uh, in uh, Ukraine, which is not communist, and it borders another country, Russia, which is also not currently communist? Why wouldn't you go to a country that was a little bit more hospitable to the cause of communism? Well, uh, you make a good point there. And. I have to say that the people of Donbass, the Don River Basin, which uh, includes southeast Ukraine and some of uh, southern Russia as well, uh, this, in, during the time of the Soviet Union, this area where I am now was considered the most staunchly communist area in all of the Soviet Union. And the people here still remember, still respect. You know, and of course, I understand that there's a lot of, you know, problems and drawbacks, uh, questionable things that were done by communists, not just in Russia, but in other countries, too. But the idea of communism, the idea of making a limit below which people do not live, the limit being that everybody has a place to live, everybody has medical care, everybody has enough food to eat and a decent job and education that goes as far as, you know, their abilities will allow that they don't have to go broke for it. They don't have to go $100,000 in debt before they even get their first job. You know, these are ideals. And the, the Communist Party in Russia is far from perfect, but there still is a Communist Party there. The Communist parties in the United States, you know, there's at least a dozen of them, and they're all pretty much a joke. You know, they're basically... Uh, Mutual, mutual admiration societies and, uh, you know, th that have never done anything and never will. But the, the Communist Party here is serious. I was in a, a, a unit called the Essence of Time. It was a, a communist, communist movement from Russia that sent volunteers here to fight on the front lines. And I was in that unit. And those are serious communists. And they're not you know, about sitting around drinking vodka and talking about the good old days or, you know, playing some old songs or something. They're guys that really want to make a better world for everybody. Right. Those and are, I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not against, you know, I don't think that, you know, a street sweeper and a brain surgeon should get paid the same. But I think that there should be a limit 
on how poor any human being in a civilized society sure, can sure. be. Sure, sure. I'm not going to um, ask you to defend the merits of communism because uh, that is, uh, that, you know, that's above my pay grade and that's beyond the scope of the discussion that uh, that we're going to have. Now, before we get into what's happening in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass region now, um, you introduced yourself as um, being in Donetsk, the capital city of the People's Republic of Donetsk. Now, uh, the UN has not has not recognized Donetsk as an independent country. Ukraine does not recognize Donetsk as an independent country. The United States does not recognize Donetsk as an independent country. And from what I can tell, from what I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Russia does not um, recognize Donetsk as an independent country. So at what point, if, if you guys in Donetsk are claiming you're a country, um, at what point does at least somebody have to agree with you? Well, and you are correct. Even Russia does not currently recognize the Donbass uh, republics. But that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what the people that live here recognize. Because we've stood up to the Ukrainian army, which is one of the biggest armies in the world, and we have fought them to a standstill. We have defended the idea of our republic with our own blood, sweat, and tears, and we continue to do so. So we don't ask the United Nations or even Russia or the United States or anybody else what the name of our republic is. We already know what it is, and the people that live here are the ones who are going to say what it is, and so we say what it is. What have you been seeing there recently? There have been reports that there are Russian troops amassing on the Russia-Ukraine border and that Vladimir Putin could be preparing an invasion to take back parts, to take over parts of eastern Ukraine. What are you seeing there? Well, The Ukrainian army has uh, over 125,000 troops along the Donbass front, which is about 200 miles. And it includes the military front between the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics. And there's 125,000 troops along that line on the Ukrainian side. On our side, we have about 60,000. You know, the Ukrainians, they have heavy artillery, they have tanks, they have aviation, they have rockets, they have missiles, they have all kinds of stuff that the U.S. and EU has given them, and uh, the training from the U.S. and EU how to use it. They uh, they also have chemical and biological weapons. The Ukrainians do. Fact that's the Ukrainians confirmed by not only uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense but also uh, by our intelligence agencies here. Um, there's there's American and European mercenaries. There's also a very large contingent of ISIS terrorists that have moved out of Syria and have come and are now fighting alongside the Ukrainian army on the frontier. You know, these are genuine Nazis, Heil Hitler Nazis. These uh, these Ukrainian uh, Pravi sector, Azov battalion, Idar battalion, these are guys with swastika tattoos that say Heil Hitler uh, and they act like Nazis too. I mean, some of the war crimes that they themselves have videoed and posted in public. You know, I mean, it includes, uh, you know, hanging a, uh, a DPR serviceman 
and his pregnant wife. Uh, it includes, uh, you know, sexual assaults on prisoners. It includes carving swastikas in the backs of prisoners. And now, I want to be clear, a video. The, the people that are that are perpetuating these atrocities, these are the people that the American government is allied with right now. Exactly. That they're that they are arming, training, paying and directing and directing. Um, what is your view of the prospect of a rush a Putin-led Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine? Is this something that you would welcome? Is this something that you think is going to happen? If um, r- the Russians try to invade Donetsk, are you going to turn your weapons from pointing at the Ukrainian army and turn it towards the Russian army? No, no. First of all, um, okay, you understand, as I just said, that the Ukrainian army is well, actually Ukraine, the country of Ukraine now, that's fighting against the Donbass republics is occupied by a foreign occupier, and that's the United States. The U.S. government and the U.S. CIA give orders to the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military. They don't have any say in what goes on. The U.S. says jump. The Ukrainians don't come down till they tell them to come down. So actually, Ukraine is already occupied. If Russia comes in, it will only be because they're forced to to defend, you know, the in the Donetsk republics, there's over half a million people that now have Russian citizenship. So if the Ukrainians along this 200 mile front, 125,000 soldiers, if they come in again like they did or tried to back in 2014 and 2015, you know, to basically commit genocide the Russians will come in and stop that. And it won't be an invasion. It'll be a liberation from the foreign occupation that Ukraine is already under. And they're going to come in and, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be like uh, South Ossetia back in 2008 in Georgia. You know, it's going to be a weekend affair and uh, lunch in Kiev on Monday. The Russian army is <clears throat> the most, you know, efficient and 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 uh, deadly army in the world right now. I mean, even though the United States spends ten times as much on their military, the Russians can handle Ukraine in a weekend, and they can handle the U.S. and NATO in a month. And that's just—I mean—that's not my opinion. That's what you know. Every serious military analyst in the world already understands, including the ones in in the Pentagon and the USA, which is why you know which is why Biden and NATO and the EU have already specifically said, even if Russia comes into Ukraine, they're not going to fight. Let me uh, play for you what the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said yesterday on one of the Sunday's shows. I believe this was on CBS Face the Nation, although it could have been CNN as well. He was uh, all over the place. Uh, This is uh, Tony Blinken yesterday. We are not waiting. We are doing a lot right now. And as I mentioned, uh, the United States taking the lead in bringing countries um, throughout Europe and even beyond together in putting together massive consequences for Russia if it takes uh, renewed aggressive action uh, in Ukraine. As I mentioned, uh, we're providing uh, and last year alone provided more military assistance to Ukraine than at any year uh, in the past. Uh, we have been uh, going against those 
inside Ukraine, trying to destabilize the mm-hmm. uh, the government. So we're taking concrete action. But you're not, san- but you're not imposing to, the sanctions. So yeah. when it comes to sanctions, um, the, the purpose of those sanctions is to deter uh, Russian aggression. Uh, and so if they're, uh, if they're triggered now, you lose the deterrent effect. All of the things that we're doing, including uh, building up in a united way with Europe, massive consequences for Russia, is designed to factor into President Putin's calculus and to dis- deter and dissuade them from taking aggressive action, even as we pursue diplomacy at the same time. Russell, I guess you're one of the people that Tony Blinken is referring to there as trying to destabilize the government within Ukraine. Tell me um, if Blinken and Biden follow through on their threatened response of uh, increasing aid, lethal aid to Ukrainian, which I guess to the Ukrainian army, which will have the very real world effect of uh, potentially more Russian troops dying than otherwise would and more people like you and your Ukrainian separatist brethren dying than otherwise would. What do you think the actual real world implication of American sanctions and increased American aid to the Ukrainian military would be? Well, you know, first of all, Blinken is is such a twerp. I mean, he's uh, he's from the same caliber as Biden. And, you know, I mean, one thing I'm glad about is that I don't live in the United States anymore because I would probably die of embarrassment to have clowns like that representing me. First of all, the U.S. is already sending lethal aid, has been for years, continues to. In fact, they've ramped it up since Russia gave this recent uh, final peace offering to the U.S. and to NATO and the EU. Uh, there's coming in more and more every day. And it's funny, too, uh, the British just sent in a couple of thousand anti-tank rockets um, that are uh, they're 20 years old. The shelf life on them is 20 years. So they have to be used this year or else, you know, they'll be like beyond their use by date and dangerous to use. So there's all kinds of things coming in, not just military aid, not just ammo, stuff like that, uh, not only from the U.S., but from EU countries as well. NATO countries as well, but the U.S. is flying uh, reconnaissance missions uh, multi-times a day, not with just with drones, but with, uh, you know, the C-130 uh, AWACS planes uh, all along the front, all along uh, Crimea, all along Kaliningrad, all along the Russian border, and uh, basically, they're already doing everything they can. They've already done almost every uh economic sanction that they can do. They've already done it. Russia is not afraid of NATO or the U.S. or Ukraine militarily or sanction-wise. I mean, actually, if, you know, I mean, and it's funny, too, because one of the, you know, the nuclear option of the economic sanctions that these clowns were talking about was uh, to disconnect Russia from the SWIFT banking system. And you know what? First of all, Russia is ready for that. They've already created their own interbank international system. And second of all, the EU has already come out and said they're not going along with it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, these are these are, you know, punks that are talking big, but they got nothing to back it up with. It is. It is. If 
it, it is interesting. The one thing in America that – well, one of the few things I should say that both the Democrats and the Republicans seem to agree upon in Washington is saber-rattling towards Russia and demonizing Putin and the current Russian government. Tony Blinken is a secretary of state in a Democratic administration. But another person on the Sunday shows who had very harsh words for Russia and Putin was a Republican senator from Iowa, Joni Ernst. This is what she said yesterday. We do need to fight for democracy and understanding that Putin's goal is to retain some of what he had during the Soviet era, that power and control to expand his reaches across Europe. We know that if he's able to go into Ukraine and there's very little pushback from the United States or from NATO, it allows him to move into other countries in Eastern Europe. And we know that when when Soviet Union expands as, as he wants to see it, it's you know a new form of the Soviet Union, as it expands, uh, democracy will constrict. It is important that we step up for our allies in Europe. Um, when democracy is stable, that means our troops, our citizens are much more safe. So this is a concern to our constituents. We need to make sure that democracy is prevailing around the globe and that socialism, communism, the old Soviet Union is not regaining territory. So Joni Ernst says uh, that in order to fight for democracy, we need to stand up against Russia here and make sure they not only don't go into Ukraine, but uh, they don't go into other Eastern European countries. She's essentially saying to Biden and the Democrats, I'll see your Russia bluster and I'll raise you even more Russia blusters. Joni Ernst right there, Russell. No, she's she's actually so stupid that it makes my teeth hurt just to listen to her. I mean, the thing is, you know, she's talking about democracy, you know, and I don't know if, you know, people listening to this show happen to remember the last presidential election in the United States. But, you know, for an American politician to talk about democracy uh, anywhere else in the world makes a laughing stock of America. You know, I'm, I hate to say it, but that's really true. You know, the Russians are not expanding. You understand that the borders of Russia now have in the Baltics, uh, Latvia, Estonia, um, Lithuania, these are NATO countries exactly on Russia's borders. Russia's not expanding anywhere. They're just saying that we cannot any longer uh, tolerate, you know, NATO's expansion. You know, in 1990, when the USSR allowed Germany to reunite, they were given guarantees that NATO would not expand eastward. You know, and there's been like, 20 more countries that have joined NATO since then that have all been to the east, you know. And so it's not Russia expanding. That's that's abject hypocrisy and a, a total lie to, to use the phrase Russian expansion. It is NATO expansion all the way up to Russia's borders. They have nowhere else to retreat, you know. And basically, Russia is just the large version of what we in the Donetsk People's Republic have. You know, the front line of the Ukrainian army is, is less than five miles from my house. You understand there's there's rockets, there's cannons, there's tanks, there's snipers that do work, that do shoot frequently. I mean, there's shellings happen in my neighborhood, not every day, but probably about half of the days in a month. You know, and some of them, I mean, all of them close enough for me to hear 
some of them close enough for me to smell. You understand? So these guys are already here. They're on the front line. There's no place for us to retreat. There's no place for Russia to retreat. You know, and the thing is, these Ukrainians that are backed by the U.S. and NATO, they fly Nazi flags on their positions, genuine swastika, red Nazi flags. And, you know, it's like, you know, if some dude goes walking down, you know, in front of a synagogue in New York City with a Nazi flag, you know, that's going to have a serious effect on Jewish people that see that and understand that, you know, you talk about six million Jews. How about 25 million Russians that were murdered by the German mm. Nazis under a swastika flag? And now they're back again, you know, and it's it's five miles from my house. And it's 50 miles to the Russian border from here. Russell, so, final Russia's question. Russia's not expanding anywhere. I have to run, but I have to get your answer to this response, this question. Now, the the thing I find interesting about you defending Putin on YouTube, and again, we're talking with Russell Texas Bentley. We can You can go to his website, russelltexasbentley.com. And to some extent in this radio interview is that Putin is considered within Russia – a staunch anti-communist. The Communist Party is usually the leading party running a candidate against Putin. Let me ask you, if Putin and Russia goes forward with this invasion of the Donbass region, you refer to it as a liberation, will you still try to keep Donetsk independent as a, a, a republic, as its own independent country, or will you happily rejoin with, with Russia? Well, I think the Donetsk People's Republic will always uh, have a, a very high degree of autonomy. Um, I don't think we're going to join Russia. I think when Russia liberates Ukraine, uh, that a friendly government will come to power one way or the other. Ukraine will also uh, maintain its independence, but it won't be either controlled by uh, U.S. or NATO or neo-Nazis. So... Personally, a lot of people here, you know, I mean, we thank Russia for the help that they've given us. If it wasn't for their support, you know, we would no longer exist here. But uh, at the same time, you know, we're, we're proud of our own heritage here, our own uh, independence, and uh, we hope to keep it as much as possible. Well, uh, Russ, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time this morning. Stay safe. I will look forward to our, la our next conversation. Something tells me we're going to be uh, speaking a great deal in the coming weeks and months. All right, bro. Anytime, and thank you very much, Frank. Good luck to all good people. May God protect the innocent. And may the rest of us get everything we deserve. Absolutely. Thank you, uh, Russell, uh, Russell, Texas Bentley. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Uh, I'll take your calls next. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. So as you might have heard me talking about last week, um, I had bought this table at Rayo's um, as, for a silent auction. I spent $2,000 on it, and it doesn't come with any food. So my wife basically said, all right, well, you can find a way to get somebody else to pay for this, or we can get divorced. I mean, she didn't actually say that, but in tone, she said that. So... 
I did this auction where I sold 100 chances for $30. Now, why $30 instead of $20? It's because I didn't want somebody to win the table and then essentially be handed a bill for dinner for $1,000. So I said, all right, you know, you can get not only the reservation, but the first $1,000 of food at Rayo's. And there were so many great people that participated in the contest. And I said to my wife, I really hope that um, whoever wins is somebody that really appreciates it. And then she said, well, who do you think has bought a chance that didn't doesn't appreciate it? And I looked through the list and I said, you know, you're right. These are all people that would really make the most out of the opportunity. So you can see the drawing. We did a drawing with a good old-fashioned bingo randomizer. We numbered the chances one through a hundred, and there were some people that uh, spent three hundred bucks on chances. We capped it at ten. We didn't let anybody buy more than ten, uh, but some people bought ten. Some people bought six, four, five, three, and so ultimately, the person that won—and you could see this video at uh, Facebook.com/slash Morano fan—is an old friend of mine, Todd Bellow. He only bought one chance for his daughter. And uh, and her fiance, and he ended up winning. And he, it was a pretty funny story. You can see the video at Facebook.com/slash Morano fan, where he told me how he actually sent thirty dollars before he sent it to me on Venmo to uh, the incorrect Frank Morano. So I was happy to see him win. And it's nice to see that you can still you could still win even if you buy only one of those chances. But uh, my only regret is that. Everybody didn't win. So I'm going to see if I can get my hands on another one of these tables in the future and maybe do another one of these similar raffles to to try and do the same thing because there were a whole bunch of people that I, I'm sure would have really liked the opportunity to go. So that was a lot of fun. Hey, when we come back, um, Louis Anderson, a terrific comedian, has passed away. I'm going to play for you my last conversation with Louis Anderson And um, Michelle Caruso Cabrera had a fascinating op-ed in the New York Post that says it's time for CEOs to make their employees come to work. All that, and I'll tell you about my new podcast in just a minute. We'll take your calls. Any subject is fair game, 800-848-9222. Email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. On Instagram, at moranovision, that's M-O-R-A-N-O vision. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Start of a brand new week. I'm not tired yet. Hope you're not either. At least uh, you could stick around for one more hour. I'll tell you, this show has just flown by. Uh, you know, I don't love loading up a show with guests. You know, I've, Friday, for instance, we did a show completely without guests. And uh, I like both. I like uh, having the opportunity to just riff. I like uh, being able to talk to you um, through, uh, you know, listener phone calls and so forth. But... 
it, it just some somehow sometimes you roll the dice and sometimes sometimes the cookie crumbles. The cookie crumbles where there are just a lot of interesting people that are availability to speak. Uh, on the same day. This happens to be one of those days. I'm going to get to your calls in just a minute. That's 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I will tell you, though, that in addition to this show and everything else I'm doing, management has asked me to launch a a brand new original podcast. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I really have always been fascinated by the world of organized crime, not just the mafia, but all sorts of, you know, organized crime, Russian organized crime, Asian organized crime. There's just something so interesting to me about it, but especially with Italian organized crime. Now, it just so happens the area of New York that I grew up in, I grew up with a lot of these guys, a lot of these characters. But in working here, when I was a young man, I uh, got to cover when I knew nothing about any of this stuff, several racketeering trials. Um, I'm not going to list everybody, but the first of which was John Gotti Jr.'s trial in 2005. And that's where John and I got to know one another a little bit. And I'll tell you, it was such an eye-opener to me that um, the government cheats this way. Prosecutors, the FBI, they cheat like crazy. And I'll never forget Jeffrey Lichtman, who's been a guest on this show. He was representing John Gotti Jr. in that trial in 2005. He And he's a very seasoned professional attorney. But I think when he represented Gotti in that trial, I think he'd only had one or two cases ever go to trial. I mean, he was a relatively young, a relatively inexperienced trial attorney up at, this po- at that point. Did a great job. But Jeff came out into the hallway after the government had so blatantly lied about something and was so blatantly dishonest, the prosecutors, Jeff turns to me and he said, did you see that? He said, do you see these guys? They're just as dishonest as we are. And think about that. And those words have stayed with me for the last 17 years. And you know what? I found out that it's more true than not. The government is very, very capable of cheating. And in covering a lot of these trials, I noticed one consistent fact pattern, that the government, whether the people they were prosecuting are guilty or not guilty, they so often cheat. They so often lie. So in covering a lot of these trials, I would say that on the radio. Sometimes I'd debate with Curtis. Sometimes I'd debate with other guests. Sometimes I would do my own commentaries on this subject. And because of that, There were a lot of people over the years that I've gotten to know who have been a little more organized than the government would like them to be. I would say I've befriended some of these characters. When I first started this show, as I said on Curtis's show last night or early this morning, when I first started this show, John Katsimatidis, our owner, did not give me any restrictions. He didn't say, make sure you talk a lot about this. Make sure you talk a lot about that. Hey, make sure this is your position on this. He didn't give me any restrictions. The only two things that he said is, you know, you tend to talk about Staten Island a little too much. This is not some rinky-dink radio station now. This is a station, that, especially at night, you're going to be reaching people in 36 states. You have to view it as a national show, and I have. And the other thing was, you know, you talk a little too much about the mafia. Done, John. Not talking about the mafia at all. Done. A lot of other things to talk about, and we have. But management at the station came to me 
and said, look, we want you to do your own original podcast where um, in addition to everything that you do on the radio, we want you to do a separate podcast. And I have done so. Now, my thinking is on this podcast, that's where I'm going to get out all of my desire for mob talk. And the podcast, which is brand new, you can see it at WABCRadio.com or listen to it on WABCRadio.com or search in any podcast app, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever, Stitcher. The podcast is called The Racket Report, R-A-C-K-E-T, The Racket Report. You can search it and subscribe to it, and I hope you do. I decided that my first guest was going to be, and I was thinking long and hard about who the first guest should be, but my first guest was going to be Anthony Ramundi. Anthony Ramundi is an author, and he's a former Colombo crime family enforcer and somebody that claims to have killed many people. And we spoke a lot in our interview, which is now live at WABCRadio.com, about the mob. And we spoke candidly about Carmine Galanti. You remember Carmine Galanti? He was the boss of the Bonanno crime family who very famously was killed with a cigar hanging out of his mouth. This is a snippet of our conversation, my conversation on the racket report with Anthony Ramundi. Why was Carmine Galanti whacked? Carmine was my grandfather's younger cousin. Now, Carmine was a great earner. He was the boss of the family. But what happened was Carmine was bringing in a ton of heroin constantly. I mean, his his main thing, definitely, was drugs. And he was bringing in so much heroin that all the families were having a problem because the FBI, DEA, everybody was cracking down on them more and more because they didn't know exactly. They didn't really know where they were getting all the heroin from until it came out. That Carmine Galenti, he was bringing it in from Sicily. He was bringing it all and having it shipped in. He had the connections. But it was like he was like he cornered the market. Let's put it this way. In the heroin trafficking, he was the guy who cornered the market. And then what happened with all the heat that was coming down with the FBI on the families, they really couldn't do the business they wanted to do. Like, you know, with the gambling, the gambling houses, the Shylock and the bookmaker, the numbers, the sports, the horses, even with the prostitution. And they kept saying something had to be done. So finally, there was a meeting from what I was told. And the meeting came down that Carmine had to go because he was told more than once to cut back tone it down. You're bringing a lot of heat on us. And his answer basically was, you know, excuse my language, his answer was like, you know, I do what I want. I'm the head of the family. Made a big mistake when there was a meeting and my grandfather, Antonio, he had to give the okay. He gave the okay that uh, Carmine had to get clipped. That is one of the many areas we went into. So if you want to hear that whole thing, you can go to WABCRadio.com. That's 800, uh, excuse me, that's WABCRadio.com, or you can search The Racket Report, and uh, you can um, hear our whole conversation. We're going to have another conversation because we just scratched the surface. I don't know if it's going to be this week or in the future because he certainly is a very interesting guy. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on my conversation with um, with with Russell Bentley or anything else. Let me begin with Alan in Fort Lauderdale. He- Hello, Alan. Good evening, Frank. I was, was really quite surprised by your tolerance of what that individual was saying. That person has forfeited his American citizenship 
by taking up arms against the United States military. And to listen to him on your radio station talk about the benefits of communism is really disgraceful. All right. Well, I'm sorry you didn't enjoy the interview. Thanks, Alan. 800-848-WABC. As I said, I will present all points of view on this program. And right now, he is in the center of the storm. He's in the belly of the beast in one of the hottest spots in the whole world. A spot that is about to erupt into potentially a world war between two two nuclear powers. I have somebody that's there that's about to fight in that war that is fighting on the front lines. Now, it's a side you don't agree with. I thought, now, I don't agree with him what he said on communism, but I thought he raised some interesting points about the role that the United States is playing in terms of um, in terms of arming the Ukrainians. You don't like it? Sorry. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Bob is in Long Beach. Hello, Bob. How you doing, Frank? Look, Frank, not for nothing. I can understand you want to get along with the Russians. So do I. I want to talk and everything. But let me tell you something. The idea of Joe Stalin Jr., the guy you just interviewed, right, it was, he's disgraceful as an American, of course. And you said he's there. But look what kind of view he's giving you. Do you know? But the Russians starved 30 million Ukrainians to death. Joey Stalin did it. Now, what what moral basis does he have to, to lord the good graces of the Russians? Well, I mean, didn't, I didn't, didn't he raise a good point about uh, the Russians losing more people to the Nazis, fighting the Nazis, than any country in the world? The Russians lost more people to Joe Stalin. Yeah, well, I, I'm not here defending Stalin, Bob, or, or I'm not here defending anybody. You know what I'm here doing? Asking questions and uh, trying to give you a different perspective. 800-848-WABC. Steve is in Manhattan. Steve, I understand our screener is saying you're now banned. You weren't banned on Friday. What did you do between Friday and now to get banned? Look, I just say something. Was that guest calling from a hot dog stand? Again, I don't know. I really don't know what I'm banned from. I heard you on Curtis on Saturday under, like, three different names. You sounded pretty good. All right. But you don't want to know something. I'll get to the meat and potatoes of Russia. But first of all, let me just turn back the clock. You're going to like this one. Wonderful. But it's a a horrible one. It's a sad time. It's it's a day or two after 9-11. I'm on the Hannity show, right? And he's going, Hannity's going to me, Steve, you were right. You were absolutely right. And what he was referencing was me making speeches about open borders, inviting all the enemies of America in here. And he said, anytime you want, Steve, call in, call in. Folks, when was the last time you heard me on Hannity's show? He had me banned before then. And 9-11, he let me on a day after. And after that, you haven't, seen, haven't heard from me then. Now, now, I like Curtis now. You know, I supported him for, uh, what was he running for? governor and he um says steve just call in just call in and i'll put you know i'll put you right up there don't worry about it. folks you know i'm doing that right and he's got me on hold so maybe there's a couple of pranks but if you ask the screener over the weekend he will tell you that guys calling in saying they were steve from manhattan okay and uh, first of all if you do a podcast with sports i'll be a guest if you like but first of all the Bills, listen, folks, they have a few months to teach their players how to make tackles. You can't have the punt, the nipping, and tuck in there. That was horrible, some of the tackling plays. But listen, 
um, on Russia there, people should know, first of all, the Soviets had a tactic where they would put ethnic Russians in those Soviet uh, satellite states. That's what they call them. In Ukraine, there's got to be like 9 million ethnic Russians in there. And uh, Russia, he's right, Russia does not like the fact that NATO was at their front door. And uh, there's a lot of people in this audience who don't know, but they agree with that because NATO, America's part of it, and we've committed to, to go to war for these other countries if they get invaded by Russia or anybody else. And there's a lot of people in this audience don't want their boys, the young boys, fighting wars that have nothing to do with us. NATO was started basically because the Germany was split in half. Uh, what, East Germany had like 250,000 uh, Soviet troops inside that country, and Western Europe was nervous. So they developed NATO, and about, of course, the, the United States would bear the brunt of the whole thing if something happened. And when Reagan knocked down the Iron Curtain, 250,000 Soviet soldiers were basically the biggest homeless bunch of group in the world. Now, I, I would remind that guest that he's, he's talking about Soviet Union, Russia, they had Afghanistan. Does anybody remember the bloody war in Chechnya? And then, of course, which is totally forgotten, it was happened in Ukraine, was totally controlled by the Soviets, was the Chernobyl atomic plant. The Russians and the Soviets were lying that there was no leakage in there. And who had to bail them out? Western Europe to stop that thing. That thing's still probably spreading all over the world. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Uh, John is in Las Vegas. Hello, John. Hello, Frank. I'm glad that you had that guy on. I thought he was very informative, and he gave people a point of view that you're not really going to hear that much here. Yeah, I mean, um, I, to me, John, it's certainly interesting. If someone's willing to abandon their home country and go take up arms and literally risk their lives, I'm kind of curious as to why they're doing it. And I'm kind of curious, as you see the Russians on one side of you, the, the Ukrainians on the le- the other side of you, kind of curious as to what's happening so uh i'm sorry that uh, that that rattled some people well listen um i was stationed in europe for a number of years with the u.s uh, navy but i was an air traffic controller and i worked at two bases that were heavy nato bases one on the greek island and the other in naples italy where the nato headquarters is and i handle a lot of aircraft and i've followed nato and the Russians got a point, and they've really expanded NATO um, so much. And if uh, the weapons that NATO has could hit Russia so quickly, I think Putin legitimately has problems with it. And right. I Again, as, as Vladimir Posner said when he was on the radio with me, how do you think America would react if we saw – if if – um, Russia or China started arming Mexico or Canada uh, and pointed those weapons in our direction. We wouldn't react too well. In fact, when they did it in Cuba uh, 60 years ago, we didn't react well. You're exactly right about that. So um, I think before we start running off to do some war because Republicans are talking about democracy when they actually tried to forcefully overthrow the U.S. government here – we ought to think twice about it, and I don't want to see American kids get drawn into that war, and I'm really worried because it could easily escalate oh, into World War Three with a- nuclear weapons. Absolutely, John. You're exactly right. I will add, though, that I dispute your characterization of it's the Republicans that want to rush us into war. The commander-in-chief is Joe Biden, and the right now the chief agitator of all things related to Russian aggression is Tony Blinken. So we are seeing Democrats and Republicans in Washington united in their desire to go to war with Russia. 
the the it seems like the only people that are opposed to war with Russia right now are Pat Buchanan, Tucker Carlson, and me. Right? It's the three of us versus a united Democrat and Republican war party in Washington. Yeah, Pat Buchanan, Tucker Carlson, Frank Morano, and maybe Bernie McGurk. The list ends there. 800-848-WABC. Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, uh, I want to say, yeah, Frank, yeah, that yeah. Ukraine yeah. is like uh, like the wheat belt. Like we have a wheat belt here, what, Midwest? They have a – this is a wheat belt, and I, it raises a lot of food, and I suppose Russia gets most of that food over there, the, the wheat that's raised in there or whatever else they raise over there. Well, it's you know, you know uh, I don't know much about. Uh, thank you, Tom, about what the different regions of Ukraine offer um, in terms of agriculture. I will tell you, Russia's biggest trading partner is Ukraine, and Ukraine's biggest trading partner is Russia. So this is a crazy conflict that's about to happen. It's like us going to war with uh, our biggest trading partner. Um, all right. We're going to speak with Michelle Caruso Cabrera. We're going to do the $1,000 minute. Before we do, though, I want to take – I was very, very sorry to see the passing of comedian Louie Anderson on Friday after we left the air. Uh, we had covered Meatloaf's passing, but Louie Anderson, a legendary stand-up comic and a heck of a nice guy, an actor, a television host, an Emmy Award winner – passed away at the age of 68. So uh, I thought it might be fun to go back and listen to my last conversation with Louie from about five years ago where he was promoting some stand-up special. I have always been a fan of Louie Anderson. One of my favorite things that he ever did was an animated series on Fox, maybe about 25, 30 years ago, called Life with Louie. So when I began the interview, and we did cut out a couple of references to the time and to the show that Louie was promoting at the time, um, when I began the interview, I, of course, began it with that theme song, the theme song to Life with Louie. Let me tell you about my family. Louis Anderson, thanks so much for coming on the radio with us. Thank you, Frank. I haven't heard that theme song in a while. Well, you know, I miss that show. I was surprised that, uh, you know, that uh, it wasn't more of a, a popular demand like there has been with other shows canceled before their time to bring that show back. Well, you know, we've talked about it and, you know, have thought about doing a movie at least to uh, to kind of kick it off and see if people were still interested. So we're, we're, we're toying with that idea because... You know, it was really fun, and it was popular all over, like eighteen countries in the world. I'm not surprised. You know? it, it was it was yeah. it was very funny. Now, um, you you won an Emmy for your performance on uh, the FX series Baskets, which I, I have, have to confess I haven't seen, but you've got nothing but rave reviews. Uh, my friend Craig, this is his favorite show. He says you're a cinch to win an Emmy again this year. Let's begin the the, the negotiations here, Louis. What do I have to do uh, as an individual? What do we have to do as a radio station to get you to mention me and thank? 
costs in your Emmy acceptance speech? Oh, you know that. Uh, you know, I didn't know you wanted to be. Well, that's that's that's, that's all. That's really all it takes. <laughs> Just you or Joe also. Joe also or, would like to be thanked. Joe would yeah, like to be thanked sure. as well. You know, I would be easy to slide in there. <laughs> Thank I, you. I just, yeah, no. You know, just I guess it would go like AM nine seven. Don't forget them and then bring me in and go busy about Perfect. And you know what? I will even sell. And then do this. All right. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Louis, I have been such a fan of yours and your comedy stylings for years. And people just tuning in, talking with Louis Anderson. People in New York are actually going to be able to see you uh, coming up at Caroline's, right? Yeah, I'm there Friday and Saturday. I'm really excited about last year. It was really a kickoff to a very great year for me. I was at Caroline's um, around the same time. Uh, and that was the kickoff to uh, basket season one. And now thought, what a, what a, what better way than to come back this year and kick off season two. And now last year I didn't have it, you know, but this year, I have a clip from season two that I'm going to play a sneak preview uh, for all my fans. So that'll be really fun. But I love Caroline. It's a great place to perform. Great stage. Everybody's everybody's been on that stage. And uh, I played in Caroline's in 1901 <laughs> when I was when I was a long time ago. Caroline's was on the other. Where was it before? I don't know if you remember, but it was at a different location when it first started out, and I played there, and it was like twenty some years before I played it again. Yeah, the um, so it's on it's on forty nine it's it's on forty ninth and Broadway now, right? Yeah, and, and so yeah. I, 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 that's the only location that I've been to, uh, but it is really one of the great mo- uh, you know rooms of all time. Is it difficult playing a woman on television, given that you weren't you know you're not a woman? Yeah, you know, it was, I don't know if difficult's the word, but, like, I never dressed up in my mom's stuff or my sister's stuff. I had five sisters. So it was, I think they used to dress me up when I was really a tiny, like, baby as a girl. But, um, you know, I, I, I think what happens is, you know, it was just such a, you know, I was thrown into this thing. Louis C.K. and Zach called me and said, will you play Zach's mom? And I go, yeah. Why not? And um, we shot the pilot, and you know they you put the skirt on, you put the the top and the blouse on, you get makeup on, and then they put that wig on, and then they put lipstick on you. And as soon as they put lipstick on you, you just go, "Oh, I'm a woman." <laughs> and um, you know you purse your lips, and you go, "I look pretty good as a woman." <laughs> no, and and then, and then we had to decide: Am I going to change my voice or not? And that was a big thing. And I said, Let, I'm not going to change my voice. I'm just going to use my regular voice. And, and the new season of uh, of Baskets featuring Louis Anderson, that's, uh, that's on FX starting January 19th, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, this this year is this year's wild. And, you know, like hardly ever. I mean, you know, I've been on a lot of shows and I've done a lot of television but this is the first time I've been on something where when you're making it, you go, oh, man, this is, uh, this is a little crazy. Uh, no. and, you know, so that's a really fun thing for a comedian. You know, Zach and me and Martha Kelly and, 
Jonathan Christ on Louis C.K. That's a nice combination. Oh, and, and, Zach Kalifanakis uh, as well. He plays he plays multiple roles on that show, right? Baskets. He does. Yeah, yeah. I feel bad for him because you shoot a thing and then he's got to change over into the other person, and then you have to stage that and you do the scene all over again. It's pretty amazing how you know how much in work that is, you know, for him. Oh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Yeah, he has a much longer day sometimes than I do. Now, uh, Louis, you came of age, I I guess you made your debut on The Tonight Show, right, with Johnny Carson? Yeah. You came of age as a comic 30 years ago at a time when if people wanted to see your comedic stylings, they had to go see you, uh, see you perform in a nightclub somewhere, in a comedy club, or maybe as a guest on a a talk show or something. Now, in the social media era, you... Comedians and really public people in general are expected to constantly provide a stream of compelling content on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, Heaven forbid you're not tweeting something funny to entertain all the people that are following you. I'm wondering if you could tell us how social media uh, specifically and technology in general has changed being a comedian now as opposed to when you broke in 30 years ago. Well, first of all, you know, there was no social media then. You were on TV, like you say, or you were at a club or radio. Radio was the first social media. People don't realize that all comics built their career in radio. Like, you know, let's just say you've done this. You know, you've had you've had funny people on your show that weren't successful yet. And, you know, they're coming into the area. You have a deal with the comedy club. They bring their guys down. You know, that's how you establish yourself. If you... <clears throat> we're on a top radio station like yours and you're going to play at the local club there. That was key. That was the social media. That was the way to tweet it out. You'd come, you'd do your jokes, you'd do 15 or 20 minutes or maybe even longer with the DJ that that's on that station and your the, the house would be packed. You know, that was really our first social media. I, I still have relationships 20 and 30 years with, Distractions and personalities, and in the, I guess you know, in in the markets all over the country that are still running their radio show, and so I would say radio was the first time that, you know, because you you couldn't get on TV yet because you weren't famous enough, and radio provided and often does like the first time you heard, you know. Not to mention music, but the first time you heard uh, funny people was often on the radio. Yeah, no, 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 no. That that's uh, definitely the case. One of the one of my many vices, in addition to you know uh, have heavy alcohol consumption, an addiction to cheese, and uh, a love of cigars, is gambling. I love to gamble. I, I'm I'd be in Atlantic City right now if I had the means uh, to you know support my my gambling habit. But one of the things I've always admired about you is you're quite an accomplished poker player. I think you actually. For a time, even did a radio series uh, with our friend Brian Whitman on poker. Is, is that is that yeah, right? Yeah, how is Brian? Brian is doing well. Yeah, no, I, I haven't uh, seen him because he's. Send him my bag. I will. I will. Uh, but I'm wondering for the you know I'm more of a craps guy, a blackjack guy, a baccarat guy. I've had zero success at any of these at any of these endeavors. You actually made it to the main event in the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. Can you give us as someone that might be looking to change my gambling habit from craps to poker? Is there any kind of advice that you could give me as I embark on this new uh, aspect of gambling? I can tell you exactly how you can win playing poker, and I guarantee it, you have to fold all the time. 
you think your you think your jack and nine is a good are good cards. They're not. You think that your king and a two is a playing hand? It's not. None of those hands are any good. You must constantly throw hands away. Uh, that's where people make the biggest mistake. Oh, I got a nine ten. I could get that. That could run into a a clean eye straight. No, it won't help you. Get out of that hand. You're what? not. You, you're only going to get one. Maybe two hands an hour, unfortunately. So you have to be really disciplined. All the guys, you'll watch any poker tournament, every guy, every single guy that's gone anywhere, he's disciplined. Or you're bluffing. You've got a two and a five. And you just go, you have to play it like you have the nuts, like you have the aces that that are in there. And that's the secret. I mean, poker is played. Mostly eye to eye, you know. I mean, mostly, you know, psychologically. But if you, if you, you will get called because if there are ten players and you, you're going to bluff. You better really be willing to put all your chips in right, right. on that bluff. But then you're out if you stay with the two five, and they call you unless you hit the card. Wow. No, so that's, people that's... make the biggest mistake on staying like on a pair of jacks when the flop, when the flop comes and there's an ace king on there. Yeah. You have to throw those. You have to throw those. Uh, see, I'm glad I asked this question because I absolutely would have done the wrong strategy and everything you just described. Final question, Louis Anderson. Would you consider retweeting one of my tweets, uh, Louis Anderson? So that's yeah. way. There you go. Will you right. do it right now. I will do it right, <laughs> right, right now. This way I can tap I it can't to you. Wait to do it. Uh, substantial social media following. Final question, Louis. I'm going to ask you. You have been associated uh, from time to time with Lando Lake sweet cream butter. I know you've been a spokesperson for Lando Lakes. Some great news came out. Out for those of us that are fond of butter, which is that it's actually much better for you than margarine. Do you see this as a resurgence of butter and kind of butter making a comeback as a health food? You know, I think butter is on a tre- is trending back. In fact, the whole bit I did last night was about the fact that my dad yelled at me for six hours because I left the butter out. <laughs> you know, honest yeah. to God, if he said people are worried about Trump. Are you kidding me? My dad tortured me from midnight till six in the morning because <laughs> I left the butter out. Yeah. Um, I think there is a, a comeback from butter. You know, a lot of babies are powdered. I was buttered. And uh, <laughs> I was slippery, but it was really a lot of fun. The great Louis Anderson, uh, gone too soon. What a talent. From uh, coming to America to everything he's ever done, a phenomenal comedic talent. Uh, and uh, he's really going to be missed. And uh, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to stroll down memory lane listening to that clip. I was going say, you know what's crazy is that the first time I saw Louis Anderson was on the Rodney Dangerfield Young Comedian special. And on that same show was Bob Saget. Oh, you're kidding. So we both lost them both within weeks of each other. Yeah, no. Well, and Sam Kinison was also on that show, but you know we lost him a long time ago. Yeah. But the fact that Louie and, and Bob were both on that show as young comedians, and then they made it so big in comedy and on te- television, it was extraordinary that Rodney was able to you know pick out the great talent. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Hey, I'll tell you who's alive though. Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Uh, she was a terrific journalist with CNBC. She ran for New York City controller, inspired a lot of people when she ran for Congress. You might have heard her in a lot of the radio interviews on this station or the debate that she did on this station when she was running for controller. She basically said, speaking of dead, it looks like a lot of these office buildings are dead and CEOs ought to have their employees come back 
back to work. We're going to talk to her in just a minute and uh, find out in this great op-ed she wrote for the New York Post. I'm going to link to it right now at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, why she thinks it's time for everybody to get back to work. Stay tuned. But. Before we get to Michelle, we're going to play. We're going to give you a thousand a chance to win, as Ken in the Bronx did on Friday, one thousand dollars if you can answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. Be the seventh caller now to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Seventh caller right now, Michelle Caruso Cabrera coming up in a moment. But first, I want to talk to you about Life Change Tea. You've heard me tell you about this before, and you might be asking yourself. What is Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com and what makes it so great? I'm here to tell you. It is a gentle daily cleanse that tastes great and works to get things moving. And if you're feeling stopped up and bloated, that's not healthy. It's not a good thing. It doesn't make you feel good. And Life Change Tea is an all-natural, non-GMO, one package will last you an entire month. It's only available by logging on to the website, getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. Use the promo code FRANK for free shipping. Promo code FRANK while you're there. Check out all the other great products that they have uh, that will help your health. Vitamin C, melatonin, colostrum, pine bark extract, whatever. Don't miss out. Life Change Tea at GetTheTea.com. It's the tea that makes you go. W-A-B-C. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. For the first time on Friday, we had someone win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions correctly in 60 seconds. Let's see if we can do it again, because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, Let's meet today's contestant, Steve in West Orange. Hello, Steve. Yes, good morning to you, Frank. Thank you. uh, Thank you, Steve. Thanks for playing. You've heard this uh, contest before? Yes, I have. Did you hear it on Friday? Yes, I did. So hopefully you can uh, you can have the same degree of trivia mastery that Ken from the Bronx had. All right, you know the rules. You ready to go? I am ready to go. Sir. Let's do it. The clock will begin as soon as I ask the first question. What holiday is on February 14th? Valentine's Day. How long is the average human pregnancy? Nine months. Name one of the original 13 states. Uh, New York. What famous actress recently passed away before her 100th birthday? Uh, Betty White. Which president was nicknamed the Gipper? Uh, Ronald Reagan. What process do plants use to collect sunlight? Photosynthesis. What state is my brother getting married in this year? I'm going to guess Hawaii. Who is the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers? Aaron Rodgers. What do you call a geometric space with five sides? A pentagon. In Greek mythology, who is the god of war? Uh, so it's not Thor. It's um, with an A. Um, I'm going to guess Ares. That is correct. 
we once again have a $1,000 winner, Steve in West Orange. I'm going to get in trouble for making these trivia questions so easy. Uh, Frank? Yeah. Um, I would like to donate the $1,000 to the Tunnels Tunnels for Towers Foundation. That is wonderful. Uh, That is great. And uh, we're going to get your name so we can give you proper credit with my friend Frank Siller of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, which does some great work, including uh, providing a mortgage-free home to the families of fallen police officers, including uh, the officers killed most recently in what's become uh, far too common um, incident. Uh, so thank you on behalf of them, Steve. But we're going to get your information anyway. So we, I know Frank Siller is going to want to send you a proper thank you note. Uh, so thank you for that. Well, my, my honor, truly, they do great work. Congratulations, uh, Steve. honor of the firemen and the policemen who, when everyone was running from the fire and danger, they ran into it. Wonderful, wonderful stuff, Steve. Thank you very, very much. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, two in a row. Let's see if we can keep the streak going. Although I'll get fired if we keep giving away a thousand dollars. That's for sure. Hey, somebody that knows a thing or two about money, uh, reporting on it, counting on it, you name it, is Michelle Caruso Cabrera. And, uh, you may remember her from her time on CNBC. You may remember her from her recent run for Congress. You may remember her from her bid for New York City controller last year. Somehow, New York Democrats managed to choose Brad Lander instead, which I will absolutely never understand, but uh, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, in spite of not being elected to the controller's office, is still doing some great things in terms of moving the ball forward when it comes to jobs and bringing back New York, as she did in her recent op-ed in the New York Post. Michelle, thanks so much for getting up early. Uh, This remind you of your old CNBC hours? It does actually. Yes, it's great to be on, Frank. It's, it's thanks m- for having me. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on. I absolutely uh, loved your op-ed in the New York Post, as I uh, as I mentioned last week as well. But um, of all the things you could choose to write about, why did you choose to highlight the issue of the need for people to come back to work? Oh, well, you know, Frank, I've spent a lot of time in the Bronx, and I was up there the second I heard about that horrible, horrible fire that your, your you know, game winner just mentioned. Uh, I went up there that day um, and um, to see what I could do to help. And as I was coming back, I was riding back on the subway, and I was thinking so much about the Bronx and how the Bronx has not recovered, how the unemployment rate is still so high up there compared to the rest of the city and definitely the rest of the country. And that's when it came to me that, you know, I've got to start doing something. Um, And I think I'm one of the few people who could really see that there was a huge connection between people not going to the offices in Midtown and the high unemployment rate in the Bronx. If you look at the four, five and six train, right, those are those those are like a river delta, the tips of them that go up into the Bronx and thousands and thousands of Bronxites previously would get on those trains every day to go do shoe shining, work in coffee shops, porters at buildings, you know, staff at buildings. And they're just not going there anymore because the number of people going to offices every day is at about 25 to 28 percent. We have nearly three quarters of a million of office workers not going to the office anymore. And so the suffering in the Bronx is happening uh, to some degree because of that. And if we could just get people to start coming back just a few days a week, I know the world has changed. I'm not a dinosaur. I know work from home um, is going to be a permanent fixture, but not everybody is going to work from home every day. 
Uh, and, and now's the time to start getting people back. If, this, if they don't come back, the city doesn't come back. Is the reason that um, some CEOs, and I'm very appreciative that the owner of our radio station has wanted everybody back at work as soon as they were able to come back, but is the reason that some, and a big shout out to John Katsimatidis, who I know is a big fan of yours as well, but is the reason, Thank you. Is the reason that some CEOs are not having employees back at work due to uh, COVID protocols and a desire for social distancing, or is it due to the fact that during the lockdown, people just got in the habit of working from home and they don't want to come back? Look, I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's definitely employee pushback. If they can avoid the commute, why, you know, why wouldn't they want to do that? Um, okay, totally get that. Totally get that. But at the same time, there are days when you need to come to the office. If there are going to be group meetings, if, there's, if you are going to um, have relationships that help a company move forward, it's extremely uh, difficult to do that from the isolation of your own home. And so, yes, I think it's definitely partly employee pushback, and partly that was a message to the employees who are like, ah, you know, why do I have to do this? That their, their decisions have implications for thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers if they continue not to come in at all, ever. Now, um you I had no idea that the office occupancy rate was still as low as 28 percent. And you write that a lot of the people most affected by this aren't the upper middle class and aren't the wealthy, but the people that are most hurt by the fact that CEOs are not mandating their their office workers to come back to the office are the poorest among us. How so? Well, so like I said, if you look at the four, five, and six lines, it's just one example. And you go right up into the Bronx. A lot of the folks who live in the Bronx are the folks who got on those trains every morning and would come in and do all the office support work, right? The, every single office job has a multiplier effect because an office employee comes in. Um, if there are many more office people, you need more people working the front desk. You need more people who are you know, serving them coffee. You need more people who are shining their shoes. You need more people who are more employees who are serving them in restaurants and business lunches, uh, you know, serving them drinks after work when they, when they go to happy hour. There's a whole multiplier effect that happens. And that, that number I get, the Partnership from New York does a survey every three months. And the, we thought there would be improvements by now in the number of people coming back, but it hasn't happened yet for all the reasons that you talked about. But if, if people start thinking about what the implications are, and if CEOs start thinking about it, if, if they were going to wait, you know, three months, why, why wait? Why not now? Now, there are going to be some people, and by the way, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, a former CNBC anchor and reporter, former uh, candidate for New York City controller, the top Latino vote getter in last year's Democratic primary. There are going to be some people listening to you now, Michelle, that say, well, wait a minute, doesn't Michelle understand that there's still a pandemic going on? Maybe it's unwise to have people uh, arm in arm and side by side, cubicle to cubicle in office spaces. Why not uh, have them work from home where it's a little less likely, perhaps, that they'll get the Omicron variant of this disease? What do you say to that, that uh, by advocating for a full-fledged or almost full-fledged return to work, that, that you're not taking the proper COVID protocols into effect? No, I'm not advocating for people not to be safe, for sure. The 
you can absolutely have a safe office space now. We've learned that, right? There can be social distancing, especially if I'm not saying everybody's got to come back every single day of the week, um, just a few days a week. If you don't have everybody coming in the same day, there's plenty of space to have social distancing. There's plenty of protocols that we now know we can put in place um, that mean that people can be safe at the office. So, you know, the rest of the country is getting there. We can get there, too. You, in your piece in the New York Post, which, again, I've linked to on my Facebook page, people can read it if they haven't seen it, although it got a lot of attention last week. Um, You ask New York City's business leaders to take the journey that you described a couple of minutes ago, take the four or the D up to the Bronx, look New Yorkers in the eyes, bring your head of human resources. You write that you'd be glad to arrange such a tour. Um, what have you heard from New York City's business leaders since this op-ed was published a few days ago? Um, from some top bank CEOs, I've heard, go get them. Yes, we want to do that. We're trying. We're getting pushback from employees. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been very, very positive from business folks. Um, but the struggle they face is that right now unemployment is very low, except in the Bronx. And so a lot of employees can go to other jobs if they're unhappy with the conditions with their work. I get that. Um, so that's the balance that we have to strike. Uh, but at the same time, if there are not everybody can work from home forever. It's extremely difficult to train young people. If you have new people coming in, it's extremely different, difficult to teach them the culture of your business if you don't actually have them in the office at some point and mixing with other employees and getting direction that way. There's nothing like a face-to-face meeting um, that really makes people understand each other, that makes people work together better. Uh, so, like I said, I know, you know, I'm not advocating for the return of the buggy whip. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> I'm returning for, uh, advocating for is, just a few days a week. <laughs> what does it do to New York's tax base to have uh, sub- workers permanently working from home, not coming into New York, spending money in New York restaurants for lunch and uh, patronizing, as you point out, New York shoeshine people and all sorts of other ancillary businesses that historically have benefited from commuters into Manhattan? What is that going to do to New York City's budgets in future years? Uh, it's got a very, very detrimental effect because every single time that a coffee isn't poured, there's, you know, taxes not paid on that coffee. Same for drinks, same for dinner, same for, for everything, right? When we have a decline in business, we have a decline in business taxes. And then as a result, we have less money for the city, and that's less money for our, you know, our frontline workers, for our defenders, for our teachers, for, for infrastructure, for everything that we need to make the city go. So, yeah, it's got a, it's got a terrible knock-on effect when people don't have that, when we don't have all that residual spending that comes from what happens when people 
go to the office each day. I, I referenced our uh, our owner, John Katsimatidis, uh, earlier, and uh, one of the things that he's been saying, and in fact, he said it Sunday morning when we were on the radio together, is that people are not going to feel comfortable coming back into New York, either as workers or as tourists, until they feel safe. And right now, yeah. the current situation is uh, there's a tremendous feeling that, that, that crime is running rampant throughout New York City. I noticed that you tweeted the commercial that uh, Congressman Tom Swazi put out where he basically says if any DA, uh, including Alvin Bragg, is not going to enforce the law when he's elected governor, he's going to remove that DA. Uh, do I take it to mean that you are supporting Tom Swazi for governor or, or are you just supportive of that aspect of his message? You, know, that, you shouldn't see that retweet as an endorsement. Maybe I should put that in my bio. You know, RTs no, don't equal endorsements. But I, I, I do endorse the idea uh, of what he's saying. Look, mayor, our new mayor is doing everything he can, and he's got a much better attitude and view and plan for defeating crime compared to our previous mayor. Um, but he cannot do it alone. Um, yes, we have to get to the root causes of crime. Yes, we have to get illegal guns off the street, but criminals also need to know that there's going to be accountability. And right now, they can say maybe there's no accountability. So why would they not continue to do what they are doing? Everybody has got to be rowing in this boat to improve the safety level in the city. I get it. The people are afraid uh, because of the rising levels of crime because of, you know, a woman getting pushed in front of the, uh, a subway train. I mean, how God awful is that? So scary. Um, but w w we've got to have all of our law enforcement officials working to stop crime. Can't be the mayor just doing it all himself. Um, so, th so that's why, why I retweeted that. I would also say, by the way, that there's safety in numbers. If we had many, many, many more people in the subway, People would feel safer uh, because that you, you've just got more people around you. Um, and, and I think that would help lower the, the sense of fear that we have in the subway, that some people have in the subway. Final question, Michelle. You ran for New York City controller last year. The person that ended up getting elected was uh, Brad Lander, a, uh, an advocate, at least for the last year and a half or so, of defunding the police, including writing an open letter to his constituents calling for a billion-dollar cut to the New York City Police Department. Now that he's controller, he actually has an NYPD security detail. In your view, is that hypocritical at all to, on the one hand publicly call for defunding the police but at the same time enjoy new york city police protection when i was a journalist we would call that a softball frank yes <laughs> of course totally hypocritical but i am not surprised um of course people everyone wants to feel safe even the people who claim that they want to um i don't even i've never even used that phrase i don't even like that phrase uh, the second I heard, I thought it was a disaster, a disaster for New York, uh, and it's been a disaster for the Democratic Party. Um, I have never, ever advocated for that, uh, and I'm not surprised that he would be hypocritical. Well, uh, Michelle Caruso Cabrera, I hope we could chat again soon. Next time you feel like an early morning, maybe we can even get you in studio. Oh, that would be fun. That would be indeed. Uh, thanks for writing this, and thanks for your advocacy on behalf of New York's workers and the business community especially.
And thanks for having me on, Frank. It's a pleasure. Thank you. If you want to read this op-ed, uh, I've linked to it on Facebook. It's also on the New York Post web, website. But if you want to read it, uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, and uh, you can give it a read and uh, share with me your thoughts. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. 800-848-9222. Be heard on any subject for 15 seconds straight ahead. Start your morning with Frank Morano on 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, Before we get out of here. The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents breaking news. Breaking news. Minutes ago, uh, NATO says it is sending additional ships and fighter jets to Eastern Europe amidst the Russian troop buildup near Ukraine. This is just breaking And uh, unfortunately, it looks like we are getting closer and closer to an armed conflict with the world's second largest nuclear power. That's bad news from my perspective. But if you're looking to uh, make sure you don't get wrapped up in the financial tumult of anything happening in Eastern Europe, think about gold and silver. And that's where legacy precious metals come in. If you have an existing retirement account, roll it into a gold or a silver IRA. Do it with legacy precious metals. And uh, gold should be a part of every wise investor's portfolio. Legacy is the company you can trust because they give you unbiased information based on your individual situation. Call them. Write this number down, please. 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. Or go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. All right, we're going to do a lightning round of... Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Eddie in Nassau County. Eddie's not... Tommy in Flatbush. Soviets and the Chinese communists are serial killers. There's only one name that list is Pat Buchanan. Willie in Woodhaven. Patty in Connecticut. Uh, as a grocery employee, go back to work. Stop buying your M&Ms and Doritos. Fred in Yonkers. Don't you know who I am? I'm Flory Dory Fred from Yonkers. We want the Flory Dory. Ted in Forest Hills. We want to report that uh, Bigfoot does not exist, flying saucers in the stellar space does not exist, and the uh, solution on uh, before the uh, uh, what's put on the arm before a needle is to make it slide in. All right, thank you, Ted. Uh, that's all that, that slams the lid on things for today. I will be back at one a.m. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.